We're here at our superfan Kevin McAllister's home to drop off a signed copy of our newest Home Alone episode. Who is it? Uh, it's Paul. I'm here with Matt. We're just dropping off a copy of the episode for Kevin, as we discussed with him. Leave it on a doorstep and get the hell out of here. Well, we had also wanted to thank Kevin personally. He was also planning on gifting the podcast with a sizable donation. That effect. How much do I owe you? I, I mean, nothing, of course. We're just more than happy to thank Kevin and be on our way, if, if that's preferable. I'm going to give you to the count of ten to get your ugly, yellow, no-good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. One, two, ten! (laughs) Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Welcome everyone to the beginning of our Christmas season, at least officially. Our past episode that we just released before this was sort of a bridge to the Christmas season, but now it is time to really dive in with Home Alone. Home Alone was a movie that I watched obsessively as a kid. I probably saw it, I don't know, ten, a dozen or more times within a pretty short period of time. I mean, maybe a year or two, I would just watch it over and over again. I think that I was maybe around five or six years old around this time, so it was a little bit after the movie had already released, since that was back in 1990. But I had a VHS tape of the movie. Not an actual licensed tape, mind you, but one that was taped off of TV, along with a whole bunch of other random movies and stuff that were all on the same tape, as was often the case back then. And I would just watch it obsessively. And then at some point, I stopped watching it. I don't really know what came along that stole my interest away or what happened. But then I never came back to the movie until recently, when we decided, or at least when I decided as my pick for this season, to do Home Alone for the podcast. So I would estimate that it has been approximately 30 years since I last saw this movie. And Paul, every single scene just brought back these primordial memories that I had locked away somewhere in my brain. It was the craziest experience. I think that this is rivaling some of my top picks for the most nostalgic watch that I have had since we have started the podcast. And a big part of that is just how long it had been since I had watched it. You know, a lot of my other favorite stuff like Hocus Pocus, Are You Afraid of the Dark? You know, I'd been watching it on and off for for years. This was like I stopped cold turkey and then all of a sudden just smacked in the face with nostalgia. That's insane, man. That is a long time, especially for you. I know how you like going back to different things. We had started this podcast because you were kind of going back and reliving some nostalgia from Nickelodeon and, and had the idea to do it. And so for you not to go back to Home Alone, it's kind of wild to me. It's one of the definitive Christmas stories. Somebody, I 
can't wait to hear all the different memories that this triggered for you. I actually yesterday just watched a movie called Hippopotamus where somebody had to had retrograde amnesia and had to come up with different life events to remind her of their love together pretty much. And I feel like that's you here. So <laughs> try to remember <laughs> the Christmas spirit that you may have lost because of this movie. <laughs> I mean, it is a lot like that. It is a lot like amnesia and then suddenly remembering all these people and characters and places. And I do have to also add that this is kind of my baseline for how the world is supposed to be. And what I mean by that is the time that this release in the late, sorry, in the early 90s, 1990 itself, actually, in that time period, and then looking at the people in the movie, like the hairstyles, the clothing they wear, the memorabilia, and other sorts of culture that's up on the walls, and like the old technology, just the whole look of it and everything is like, this is what the world looked and felt like. So to me, this is like how the world should be in a way. Like it's how I remember everything as like at the start of my life. This is how things were this sort of, you know, early nineties, like kind of still with some memory of the eighties thrown in there and just everything about it. It just seems like going back to the very beginning of, of my life, pretty much. 30 years puts you about Macaulay Culkin's age. Cause he's eight. So it puts you around that age. And I agree, this movie, it's hard for me to view it objectively just because I saw this very much as the definitive way of just how Christmas is supposed to be. And it's hard to put that into words of what that means, but it hits all the boxes of things you expect Christmas to be. It's got the snowfall, it's got the decorations, it's got the presents, it has the the craziness with the families, it has the church and choir and music and just Santa Claus, everything about it just strikes Christmas. And so it's kind of hard for me to view it objectively because like you said, this is just kind of, this was our, the beginning of our story as we were writing our story. And now as we were writing our introduction into Christmas, this hits everything, the wallpaper even still being a thing. It just, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a time capsule of how we all grew up with Christmas. And it kind of makes me wonder what came first, the chicken or the egg. I mean, was Christmas like this always and then Home Alone codified it? Or did people see this movie and just kind of adopt a lot of the principles? It's I, it's hard for me to even know. Definitely something where I look at it and say, yep, this was just how Christmas was done. Everything from the stockings to the fireplace. Very, very nostalgic. They hit everything here. And the fact that you have really strong connections with it. I can't wait to hear the different parts of young Matt's childhood spring to life, including sledding down a staircase. Yeah, we did that every year, didn't me and my cousins. Didn't you guys do that too? Um, yeah, so I'm pretty excited to jump into this one. I do have a rather hefty back to the 90s segment here as well. Whenever I started researching this segment, I initially believed that there wouldn't really be a whole lot to say because this does go back so far. We're talking November of 1990 here. And we were barely people at the, at this time. We were like three years old, you know, three and a half years old, whatever it would be. And so I was thinking, man, probably a lot of these movies or these ideas with books or, or TV, like I probably wasn't watching it, you know, because I was, I was just like a baby pretty much. But it turns out, I guess in the years like since, you know, I was ingrained with a lot of these things. I probably saw them on reruns or whatever. And so I will also note that my family was always behind the times with like anything, like getting anything new, 
you know, seeing anything new. We all, we were always on like a six month delay, like waiting until it was cheap or it was on video or like whatever. So probably that has a lot to do with it too, experiencing some older culture. So the movies at this time, and I will note that this actually released originally November 10th, of 1990 in Chicago specifically, which is where it is filmed and set. But then it had the wider release on November 16th. Uh, So I tried to kind of pivot around the 16th. So for November in movies in 1990, the top movies were Home Alone, believe it or not, Top of the Box Office, Dances with Wolves, number two, Three Men and a Little Lady at number three. Misery at number four. And I think this is a typo. Um, There's a movie here called Rocky Five that was fifth at the box office. But as all Rocky fans know, Rocky Five does not exist, at least until they made Rocky Balboa like 20 years later. But that this Rocky Five, I, I don't know what this is supposed to be. Um, going over to music, Love Takes Time by Mariah Carey, Pray by MC Hammer, More Than Words Can Say by Alas, Groove Is In The Heart by D. Light, I'm Your Baby Tonight by Whitney Houston, and Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. In the world of video games, the original TMNT, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game for the Nintendo Entertainment System, which was famously lambasted by the angry video game nerd James Rolfe in some of his early work. Uh, Mega Man 3, also on NES. Pit Fighter, getting the arcade release. The Mega Drive, also known as the Sega Genesis, released in Europe at this time, had already been out in Japan and the U.S. for some time. And then also Super Mario World was released in Japan. This is something that blew my mind. So the Super Famicom which would be the Super Nintendo in America, was already out in Japan in 1990, and Super Mario World was also already out. In books, this is often a category that I struggle with. It's just hard to find stuff that fits with our memories in some of these early years, but there are some in 1990 that are just... I mean, they're a big deal. Uh, We had Good Omens by Terry Pratchett. They made a TV adaptation of that sometime recently, I haven't seen that, but I do love the book. I read that many years later. The first book in the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan, an epic fantasy series, The Eye of the World, came out in 1990. We also had Oh, the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. V for Vendetta, the comic, was written by Alan Moore in this year. And finally, Jurassic Park, the novel, was released. These are not specific to November. They're just throughout the year. And then for TV, I decided to do something a little bit different because we always end up with the same list of the same shows. So instead of just taking the Nielsen ratings, I actually went and found some information where they showed the number of viewers night by night throughout the week. And so I picked, instead of the rating, the shows that had the most views on specific nights. So... On Monday, the top show was Murphy Brown. We had Matlock on Tuesday. On Wednesday, a personal favorite, Unsolved Mysteries. On Thursday was Cheers, which was also the dominant show of this entire era. 
On Friday, we had a very close race between Full House and Family Matters. On Saturday, the Golden Girls reigning supreme. And then on Sunday, another personal favorite, America's Funniest Home Videos, of course hosted by Bob Saget. An excellent show. So I found a lot more stuff to vibe with here than I thought that I would. I'm just going to let you sort of take it over because I just talked for a long time. It's funny here. We're looking at Family Matters as well as AFV, America's Funniest Home Videos, both iconic shows growing up. And Carlton actually hosts AFV now. He's actually the current host. Um, Bob Saget obviously is goaded. And I forget the name of the guy in between there, but that's the one my kids kind of know because that's one of their favorites to watch at my parents' house is AFV. And we just watched it recently. It's something that sometimes they like going to bed with the silly videos and whatever. And it's just the hosts, they actually do add a lot. It's amazing. It's funny. We both had that similar experience with AFV. I guess this is kind of before the YouTube and whatnot where you could kind yeah, of- it's like proto-YouTube, right? It kind of is. Yeah, it was basically what you had to get before YouTube and you can get the cat videos and whatnot. You had to send it in to AFV and then vote and try to get money and whatnot. But that was always a, a goaded show. Full House and Family Matters, I'm glad they're paired together just because they're equally iconic. Just great sitcoms that we grew up with. Strong father figures, which unfortunately we're not seeing as much nowadays. And I obviously have some bias there, but I, I miss sitcoms that really feature the strong father figure where the kids would kind of at the end, they'd go to their dad and the dad would have some advice and they would actually some listen wisdom. to their dad. Yeah, the yes. kids would actually maybe make a mistake, believe it or not. And the dad might say, hey, here's your mistake. Here's what you should do, as opposed to stuff now where the dads are just always Looney Tunes and whatever they stand for must be rejected. And the kid ultimately is correct the whole time. That is sort of how it is, right? Like it's sort of nowadays, uh, it's the inversion of what we grew up with. Because, you know, when we grew up, you would watch these sitcoms and there were always these father figures, whether it's talking about Danny Tanner or you're talking about Carl Winslow or whoever it is. And they would always have this perspective, right, that would help the other characters, the children characters, the teenager characters. And there would be sort of like this learning moment at the end of the show. But now it's like the parents, dads in particular, are singled out as these like buffoon characters that are like behind the times. They don't understand anything. The kids are enlightened and they they have to kind of almost like drag their dad like across into the you know the 21st century in a sense so totally opposite yeah totally opposite and that's if the dad's alive a lot of times the dad's just dead and again i encourage our listeners to go back to the disney episode i do a whole rant on that but to reiterate something like moana where the the dad refuses to go beyond the reef to find coconuts he'd rather the civilization starve to death and so moana gets to be the hero and coco where the dad refuses to listen to music for whatever arbitrary reason and therefore he's really hard set against it and at the end obviously you know miguel's able to have his triumph stuff like that where the 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 kid is the one enlightening the parent very much the theme here very cognizant of that and you know i'd like to go back where the father knows a little bit more maybe than the kid and you just don't see that a whole lot in cinema anymore but no need to worry that's why we have nostalgia that's why i have my kids go back and watch the old stuff as much as i can (laughs) Yeah, I don't blame you. I would probably do the same. Uh, But yeah, lots of really great stuff here. So I I would encourage you guys to go back and watch some of these awesome movies and and shows. And, you know, obviously, 
Rocky Five, also known as Rocky <laughs> Balboa, I would recommend. It's a really good movie where Rocky, in his older age, has to take on a young and up and coming boxer named Mason the Line Dixon, and uh, it's uh, it's really uh, it's got some great montages in it. <laughs> For anyone who does not know what I'm talking about, I despise Rocky Five, as do most real fans of the series, and. There's actually somebody who I'm friends with at work. We always have this ongoing joke about how Rocky Five does not like is actually Rocky Balboa, which was technically the sixth movie because, in a way, it was almost to try to make up for the train wreck that is Rocky Five. So I basically refuse to acknowledge its existence, but I do very much want to bring Rocky to the podcast, and I'm hoping that that'll be happening in the upcoming new year. We'll have the opportunity to delve outside of thematic X, Y, and Z. I encourage you to bring Rocky to the forefront. You you are the sensei here. I guess it's a crossover from Karate Kid, but you yeah, are you bit. are the one who will bring Rocky to light. And yeah, I haven't even seen Rocky Five. I'm not that. I'm not a super fan Don't like watch you. It. it doesn't exist. Like you can't watch it even if you wanted to. It doesn't exist. It goes I, it goes from Rocky Four where he defeats communism and the <laughs> Soviet Union by defeating Ivan Drago, also known as Dolph Lundgren, uh, goes from that directly to Rocky Balboa, which came out like in the late 2000s. So, And I, I've always said, I think that's your right as a fan. To, if something does not fit into the proper canon, you have every right to ignore it. It shouldn't be able... You, what you love about that series shouldn't be destroyed by a terrible iteration of a movie. You should just literally be able to slice it Say, no, Rocky didn't do X, Y, or Z that I disagree with, and I'm sticking with the first four. You have the right to sever it. We could talk about something a little bit more palatable about fighting in Pit Fighter, which just triggered huge memories. This game was epic, man. Did you ever play it? I did, but I didn't really play it in the arcade. There was a Genesis port uh, that I played extensively. Uh, I'm sure the arcade version was a bit better, <laughs> but um, still great game. Loved it. Great yeah, fighting game. Hyper-realistic fighting, just absolute oh, savagery. Absolutely yeah. an amazing game. And I like that it was people as opposed to the you know more fantasy of like a Mortal Kombat or whatever. But yeah, I remember that being such an epic fighting game. And I played it for the Sega as well. It was not one of the arcade games that were my go-to, kind of like Virtua Fighter, Tekken, Mortal Kombat, even Killer Instinct. This was not, I don't remember this being in the arcade. I'll trust your word here. I did play it exhaustively for the Sega. Also, you know, I was a big NES guy. I had a hand-me-down system from my cousins. And so... Uh, Games like Mega Man 3, the original TMNT is pretty bad. Not bad, it's just unnecessarily difficult, which is really what the Angry Video Game Nerd episode hammers home. I recommend watching that if you guys haven't in a while. Uh, It really does a good job of explaining why it is so frustrating. But yeah, really good stuff here. Love Super Mario World. Probably one of my favorite Super Nintendo games. We're a little bit ahead of the time here because Japan, of course, is ahead of the curve. That won't be coming to us in America for some time. All right, guys. Well, now that we have all of this nostalgia packed away here, we've got some more, almost like a new Christmas present to open up in the form of Home Alone. And so we are going to be going through narrating as per usual. Paul is actually going to start us off today. So he's going to be leading us on the journey of Home Alone. So I'm just going to hand over the reins to the sleigh 
and we can get rolling. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> well, putting us in the Christmas spirit is this opening credit scene, just giving us basically black screen and text. And we do see this moon in the background and it kind of just zooms out. And as we zoom out, we get to see this house. It's kind of like a cardboard cutout, but it's just the cartoon drawing of the home that you may see on the cover or, or be familiar with probably what we'll use for our episode release. And it really puts this McAllister home into perspective. And then from there, we get this really cool shot. We're then in the actual house itself and able to see it in all of its glory. And man, this house is epic. I mean, it's it's massive. Twice my current home. It has a nice definitive attic with windows. So, you know, you've got tons of space. Obviously, a very wealthy family. It looks like maybe a cul-de-sac of sorts. Very nice suburban community. And the inside of the house is just absolute madness. It's not just, again, this is the McAllister home where Kevin McAllister, Macaulay Culkin's character, will live. But he's not just there with him and his family. It's also his extended family as well. So everyone's just kind of running around. They're getting ready for a trip to France. But it is complete chaos here. People are just running around getting ready. There's a police officer in the hallway who's trying to find the parents. Pardon me, are you a parent's home? Yeah, but they don't live here. Tracy, did you order the pizza? Buzz did. Excuse me, miss. Are your parents here? My parents live in Paris, sorry. Hi. Hi. Are your parents home? Yeah. Do they live here? No. A lot of funny jokes here. Basically, there's so many people in this house, and he's just absolutely bewildered about what's going on in the situation. We cut to Kevin's mom, Kate, on the phone, and we get Kevin McAllister, Macaulay Culkin, entering the room. He complains to her. Mom, Uncle Frank won't let me watch the movie, but the big kids can. Why can't I? It's not even rated R. He's just being a jerk. Kevin, if Uncle Frank says no, then it must be really bad. He then leaps onto the bed where she's been packing for the trip, and then she tells Kevin to get off, to which Kevin says, hang up the phone. And make me, why don't you? Again, she's on an important call here, and she just has had enough of it. She says, this kid, but stays on the phone. She's just exhausted, getting ready for this trip. At this point, Kevin's dad named Peter comes in, and then ends up scolding Kevin McAllister for using a glue gun in the garage with Peter's new fish hooks. That's something that Kevin wasn't supposed to do. So obviously, he's just causing a lot of problems here for everyone in the family. They end up handing him off to who I believe to be the grandmother. At this point, we cut back to the police officer still looking for the actual parents. And Kevin McAllister is here struggling to pack his suitcase. He can't believe that he has to pack the suitcase for himself. And pretty much everyone piling in on Kevin here. The dope was whining about a suitcase. What am I supposed to do? Shake his hand and say, congratulations, you're an idiot? I'm not an idiot. Oh, really? You're completely helpless. Everyone has to do everything for you. She's right, Kev. Excuse me, pupils. I'm a lot smaller than you. I don't know how to pack a suitcase. Listen, Kev, what are you so worried about? You know mom's going to pack your stuff anyway. You're what the French call les incompetents. What? Ultimately, Kevin is resenting his family, and he just wants to live alone. At this point, we're in Buzz's room, who is Kevin's older brother. We see a tarantula, and that Buzz is only interested in the French ladies for this trip. Buzz clearly hates Kevin and won't let Kevin sleep in his room. Kevin had approached him about sleeping in his room because he didn't want to sleep with Fuller because Fuller wets the bed. At this point, we hear something on the outside, and then Buzz kind of looks out the window and sees an old man with a shovel. He kind of brings Kevin over and tells him the story of Old Man Marley. You ever heard of South Bend Shovel Slam? No. That's him. Back in 58, murdered his whole family and half the people on his block. 
with the snow shovel. Been hiding out in this neighborhood ever since. He did so in 1958, but there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. He says that this old man Marley shovels every day now, and he puts the bodies in a garbage can of salt to turn them into mummies. This terrifies Kevin, and then we get this dramatic zoom in on this old man's bearded face. He seems like he might be important later on in the story. So there's a lot of really awesome just interior decoration and technology and all sorts of things to notice in these scenes. I would recommend just sort of going through and just freeze framing a lot of these rooms and just sort of looking at how they're laid out. I mean, the Christmas decorations are just all over the place. We've got lights, everything you could desire. What I really homed in on here was how the dad was talking about needing to have a voltage adapter. I don't know if you guys have ever been overseas to Europe or somewhere. When I took my honeymoon to Italy, we had to have voltage adapters because they have a different system in Europe. So if you have American tech that you're bringing with you, you need these things in order to use your devices. To me, that was like a big deal to make sure that you didn't forget the voltage adapters. So his dad here uh, going on and on about that, and then other family members asking for them as well, I thought was pretty funny. It reminded me a little bit of our Clarissa episode because he says, how else am I going to shave my face in Paris? So he, oh, yeah. he's, he's an electric shaver guy. I guess you could just get a, a Mach 3 or Gillette, a Bic razor, something like that. But no, he, this guy's electric razor. This is of primary importance to him to shave. He's only there for a few days, but he's like really worried about getting his voltage for <laughs> shaving. This isn't for a phone, right? This is just for his reportedly just for his electric razor that is of paramount importance to him. This guy is not going to be using a bladed razor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not a blade guy either, uh, so I, I can empathize, I guess. But if it was me, I'd just let it grow in for a few days. I mean, you know, just, just add to the beard that I already have. It's not really a big problem. Even as it is, I do not shave daily. I probably go three days at least, yeah, about three days in between shaving to sort of let the scruff grow in a little bit. But I guess for him, that's not acceptable. He's he's a non-bearded man. He's a respectable upper middle class, I would argue upper class man, if we're looking at this house and all the kids that he has and everything. It seems like this guy is loaded. And obviously, that's going to be something that marks his house as a target later on for some of our favorite characters, the Wet Bandits. One other thing here is in Buzz's room, I spent a lot of time sort of looking at some of the things on the wall. One of the things I wanted to really highlight was that he has a Chicago Bulls number 23 Michael Jordan poster that is in his room there. This does take place in Chicago. I can only imagine what it would be like to live in Chicago during the height of the Bulls. That had to be insane. And I don't even like basketball, but I mean, I would if I grew up in that environment. And one of the things that I did was I actually looked up the 1990 to 1991 Bulls, uh, and they did win championship that year, and Michael Jordan was named MVP. So Buzz has to be really loving uh, the developments in the sports world at this time. 
I mean, you say 23 in basketball. It's got to be LeBron James, man. It's got to be LeBron James, not Michael. Jordan. Would you put LeBron up against Michael Jordan? That is a separate argument. That would be, you know, we could do a separate episode on that. That would be very triggering <laughs> for our fan base. I kind of leave that open. No, I, I think you're, you're safe saying Jordan's the GOAT if, if that's your position. But growing up with the LeBron era, yeah, it's absolute insanity. Billboards everywhere just with him on it. I'm sure when Williams on the side of their brick face painted a picture of LeBron had a picture <laughs> of LeBron with lights and everything just there, like the chosen one, all that stuff. I mean, I've, I've heard LeBron. I remember when we drafted my whole family, we were just crying over it because of how big of a moment it was knowing he was going to be great. And when he left, I cried too. I'm kind of ashamed of that, but it was a huge deal to have LeBron here. He was such a definitive, especially for Cleveland. I mean, I know you and Growing up in Pittsburgh had some share of victories, but in Cleveland, we really had the Indians for a period of time in the 90s. That was the definitive team. And then LeBron, but yeah, LeBron mania. And then when he came back and we won the championship, I obviously, that was the first parade I had ever had an opportunity to even go to. And it was just madness. I mean, it was just absolute craziness in the city, just the excitement and everything knowing uh, LeBron brought us a ship. So he, he fulfilled his promise because he had promised to, bring us a championship when he had come into the league and then he left for Miami and then had a little bit of a redemption for his career arc, but definitely not. I mean, Jordan won multiple championships. The guy was just, no one's dominated basketball the way that he did. And the bulls obviously incredibly iconic. Although of course, Michael Jordan would refuse to let himself be in any basketball games that I played in growing up. So that was kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Like NBA jam, you know, there was always that number 23 that was in there. I can see where you're coming from with that. I don't have an argument about who the GOAT is when it comes to basketball because I legitimately never watch it. I don't know if I've ever watched a full basketball game in my life. And that just is because Pittsburgh does not have a basketball team. So I have no interest in the sport. But I think that I'll take your word for it. Obviously, Michael Jordan was over everything in the 90s, especially the early 90s. You couldn't go anywhere or see anything without his face being on it. So obviously culminating in my view, at least with, with space jam, the movie and all the marketing that went along with that. So yeah, I'll take your word for it. Uh, you know, growing up here, you know, obviously our, um, our baseball team has, uh, let's just say struggled. So I'll lovingly say that they are objectively quite bad, have only been to postseason once since probably past 25 years or more. Um, but, you know, obviously we always had the glories of football and hockey to satisfy ourselves here in Pittsburgh with the Steelers and Penguins. But Buzz definitely here has to be on top of the world being a Chicago Bulls fan at this time in history, which is unfortunate because Buzz is a jerk and I don't wish him any happiness. Yeah, that's a interesting way to put it. Buzz is definitely one of the definitive characters. You get introduced in a small way to everyone, basically. This is a very disorienting scene. Very, It was very hard to even come up with the narration because everyone was just running around. But what this movie did is they would talk and they would say the person's name. So they'd say, Kevin, this or Jeff this, and that, that would basically be it. And that you'd have to identify that name to that kid. And that's all you would get for some of these scenes. Pete for Pete and Pete's in this. And basically you get that one line that he's Jeff and you just have to remember that because I he doesn't really have any other lines outside of a flashback later on. 
And so it's very hard to figure out what's going on. It fits, obviously, the theme of what they're doing, just chaos and prep for a vacation. But it's hard to kind of remember exactly who's who. But what we can take away from this is Buzz. He will be an important character and that he is vile. And all these kids are vile. And just saying horrible things to Kevin all throughout this. And it's going to be hard even putting in sound clips because some of the stuff I don't even want to hear. This is why it was hard for me even to decide to let my kids watch Home Alone because I love the themes behind it. I love the ending and obviously the atmosphere, but just the language they're using, the, the absolute hatred that everyone has for each other. It's just not a good vibe to lead off with a movie. I'm glad it gets better from here, but they say some terrible things to Kevin. So it's not just Buzz, I think, that's kind of on the bad side. I think a lot of people here just saying terrible things where if I'm a parent, I'm pulling my kid aside and saying, why are you saying that to your cousin or your brother? That's not going to fly here. Yeah, I did notice that old Pete from Pete and Pete was in here, which I thought was pretty great. Most of the characters, it's honestly not even worth paying attention to who they are because other than Buzz, I mean, a lot of them have one line and you never really come back to them. They're really more just background characters. They're used here to establish just that Kevin is just having a bad night and that nobody is on his side and that he's very isolated. And so they do that job pretty well. Um, The other main thing here is the old man Marley story. And we're going to see a lot more of him later. So I'm not going to talk a lot about him right now. I did notice his last name Marley is a character in Charles Dickens Christmas Carol. Uh, So I feel like that's probably not a coincidence. And Buzz does make reference here to him uh, mummifying the victims with his salt that he uses. Uh, And that is actually how you make mummies. Uh, I do teach about that when we talk about ancient Egypt. Uh, Once the bodies were, you know, essentially uh, embalmed and everything, they did soak them in a special type of salt uh, for quite a long time uh, until they were all dried out and ready to go. So Buzz is not off base here. Although I'm not sure if... uh, you know, regular old sidewalk salt would quite do the trick. Yeah, just pretty grotesque imagery here. Old Man Marley getting a bad rap. We'll see if it's justified or not. But Buzz has some intelligence here. You had mentioned Buzz is one of the other characters to know, Old Man Marley. And I think you're right about pretty much every other character. I did want to also mention Uncle Frank here. He will be coming back. He's Again, it's hard to know exactly the relationship of people, who's the cousin, who's the brother who's the uncle, the in-laws, etc. I'm not entirely sure whose brother or sister Uncle Frank is, but he's a lot older. And basically, Kate, when she's talking about Uncle Frank, says if Uncle Frank says that this movie's bad, it must be really bad. So Uncle Frank's going to be kind of this grotesque character here. And he's already dividing the family by kind of kicking Kevin out. I think if you're going to watch a movie, you've got to involve the whole family here and and not divide everybody. But that's going to be a common theme here, that Uncle Frank's just constantly going to be a a sore spot in the McAllister household. (laughs) I actually like uncle Frank quite a lot. He um, he's hilarious. I I think, I think he's really funny. Uh, And especially as we get later on, there's a scene where they're on the plane later on that. I think he just makes the scene, but I will, uh, I'll hold off on that for now. Well, you always have a soft spot for the the villain-esque characters or whatever. I, I see them as they would be in real life, and I look at Uncle Frank, and I just think of my brothers doing this to my kid and whatever, and that's my mindset when I approach this. So you'll be able to offer the, hey, you know, the campy version of Uncle Frank. Hey, he's the silly uncle, and I'll offer the, hey, this guy's not a good guy 
perspective. <laughs> yes, that, that, is, that is typically how things go. And I think that'll that'll follow through here as well. He is a good foil, at least for Peter here, the father. And that'll be a common theme. I think they're they're probably the brothers, but I'm not entirely sure. You had said he is upper class, not even middle upper class. I did look up this house because I was just curious to see. Wow. Uh, it, it was filmed in Winnetka, Illinois. So this everything was pretty much filmed in Chicago on site. Even actually the airports in Paris end up being filmed around here, not in actual Paris, of course. But apparently the house is listed at $2.4 million on Zillow, which is pretty decent, 5,400 square feet. Uh, The house is actually available to Airbnb at a point. So it's kind of interesting that this house is kind of a a tourist attraction, but yeah, pretty wealthy home. And who knows what it was worth back then. But yeah, around $2.5 million. Seems, I mean, this housing market, honestly, it's like, it's a lot more reasonable than I would have thought. It doesn't seem like the movie has really given it that much value. You would think from the movie, it would really jack up the value. I mean, but let's not, you know, beat around this. I mean, you know, $2 million home, that's outrageous. I, uh, that's one thing that bothers me, like now watching it is how bougie this family is. It kind of upsets me because I have this issue with, people that with unnecessary amounts of luxury and everything. And I feel like that's what this family is doing here. I mean, they're a bigger family, so they, you know, a little bit bigger house, but this place is like way beyond what anybody needs. It's just unnecessary, but it's beautiful. When I would watch it as a kid, I would think, wow, man, I wish I could live in a place like that, you know, because I was living in a very, a nice but very just standard basic like family home it was an older house built in like the 40s probably even in the 90s it was old and this house looks so amazing and so it's one of those things where you often get that in movies where they tended to focus on like the upper middle or upper class families a lot of the time which is kind of a shame i wish that they would focus more on regular people sometimes but it really does set the scene. It looks beautiful, decorated, the snow out front. I mean, it's very scenic. Well, they're not only living in a lavish home, they're living lavishly. We know they're going to Paris on a vacation and they're ordering substantial amounts of pizza. They just, they're bleeding money at this point. They can't hold it in. That's how rich they are. And so they order pizza from a place called Little Nero's. It's a high school kid driver. He's just, this is Fast and the Furious. This guy's zooming in. He's he's drifting down the street to get in, and he kind of slams into the McAllister statue a little bit, is there to deliver the pizzas. When he comes in, it's actually the police officer there who opens the door, and then Mr. McAllister goes down to pay for the pizza. The police officer is finally able to meet the owner of the home, Mr. McAllister. It seems like that's who the police officer wanted to meet all along. I'd like a word with you, sir. Am I under arrest or something? No, 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 no. It's uh, Christmas time. There's always a lot of burglaries around the holidays. So we're just checking the neighborhood to see if everyone's taking the proper precautions. That's all. Oh, yeah. Well, we have uh, automatic timers for our lights, locks for our doors. That's about as well as anybody can do these days, right? And then he goes on to eat the pizza. He does not actually pay for the pizza at this point, though. The pizza delivery guy is still standing there with the police officer. Kevin's excited coming down the stairs for his pizza, and he immediately goes in. Everyone's already eating at the table, devouring, and Kevin asks if there's any cheese pizza, which he had asked for. At this point, Buzz is there, and he says if he wants some, someone's going to have to throw it up because it's all been eaten. Kevin is not getting his pizza of choice. 
At this point, Buzz decides to tease Kevin a little bit, and he pretends to vomit. And he says to grab a plate as he begins to vomit out the cheese pizza for Kevin. This just sets Kevin off. He's had enough, and he immediately tackles Buzz into the table. Everything spills. Everything's knocked over. We have milk pouring all over the table. We have Pepsi spilling everywhere. The passports are just covered in liquid. Just an absolute disaster. And Kevin's mom, Kate's there and just absolutely tears into him saying, listen, we got to get out of here. What's going on? He ate my pizza on purpose. He knows I ate sausage and olives and Look what you did, you little jerk. Uncle Frank says, look what you did, you little jerk. And everyone's just looking at him disapprovingly. How could he ruin a perfectly good night? This is all Kevin's fault. And so the mom goes and kind of takes Kevin upstairs just to get him away from everything before things blow up even worse. As his mom's taking him away, she says, say goodnight, Kevin. And so Kevin McAllister says, goodnight, Kevin. Kind of being a little snot here. On his way upstairs, he sees that this police officer's smiling and he notices a gold tooth that shines. Finally, the mom pays the bill. It was $122.50. I mean, that was pre-inflation, so who knows? Probably in the 200s for these pizzas. But it was roughly about $10 a pizza, 12 pizzas is what they had ordered. At this point, the police officer decides to ask her some questions, and unlike Peter, the dad, the mom spills all the beans. Having a reunion or something? Oh, no, my husband's brother transferred to Paris last summer, and both of his kids are still going to school here, and I guess he missed the whole family. He's giving us all this trip to Paris for the holiday so we can be together. You're taking a trip to Paris? Yes, we hope to leave tomorrow morning. The cop assures her not to worry about her home and that it's in good hands. We get some villain music in the background, and again, Kevin's suspicious of this police officer's golden tooth and smile here. The mom ends up taking him upstairs and wants to put him in the attic. Kevin immediately feels targeted for his behavior. He says, I'm the only one who ever gets attacked for what I do. And so the mom just says, go in your attic, get away from everything. And she tells him to go upstairs in order to do so. Kevin responds that I am upstairs, dummy, since technically he is upstairs, although he is not on the attic floor. And so they're just fighting back and forth. Kevin's just really upset. I didn't want to see you again for the rest of my whole life. And I didn't want to see anybody else either. I hope you don't mean that. You'd feel pretty sad if you woke up tomorrow morning and you didn't have a family. No, I wouldn't. Then say it again. Maybe it'll happen. I hope I never see any jerks again. Kevin doubles down, though. And then he goes to lie down for the night and go to bed. He makes a wish hoping that he never sees his family again. We get a nice shot of some weather outside. It's Christmas weather, but it's a windstorm going on. The windstorm ends up knocking out a tree limb, which then takes out a certain power line here. The clocks all shut off as the family was asleep, and so they were not working. Therefore, their alarms could not go off. It's then daylight outside, and the airport express has arrived to get all their luggage and take them to the airport. The airport express begins knocking, and the doorbell rings. At this point, the McAllisters wake up, and realize that they have slept in. Some pretty epic uh, product placement for Pepsi in this scene. There's this one kid, I think his name is Fuller, who just, his whole purpose in the movie is just to drink a Pepsi and like smile at the camera more or less. And then there is uh, a later scene where Kevin is watching a movie and he has Pepsi again. So I wonder how much money they got for advertising here. The scene is really rough because it's just like a lot of discord and everybody is really angry. I would argue Kevin is also a huge jerk as well as everybody else. The way that he like calls his mom a dummy and 
you know, all these different things. So it's kind of uh, all around everyone that's just being pretty rough here. Buzz definitely deserved what he got, though. I kind of wish Kevin had taken him down a little bit harder. Uh, but, you know, he's a little kid here versus this big hulking uh, bully type character. Ultimately, though, what I'm really hung up on is how cool this attic is. This attic is lit, as the kids would say. And basically, I mean, if I had a space like that, I would probably never leave it. I would just be up there all the time. It's got this big couch up there that is sort of like beige with different strips of different colors running through it. I think everybody had this couch. I'm sure that we had it at some point or family members had it. It's a pullout. And so you're up there in the attic. You know, they've you've got the whole space to yourself. I don't really think this is a punishment. I'd be all about this attic, man. I mean, it'd be like the coolest room. Maybe not quite as good as Arnold's room from Hey Arnold, but it would be a pretty good room. We're on the same page here with the attic space being awesome. I've always wanted one, especially if you could get a moonroof or something like that in there. Absolutely epic. And I guess the punishment is because he's going to have to sleep with Fuller, who's going to wet the bed. It kind of ties into the Pepsi because they say, Fuller, go easy on the Pepsi so he doesn't wet the bed later on. And it is kind of, it's funny that that's Fuller's being played by Kieran Culkin, who's Macaulay Culkin's actual younger brother. Now he's three time nominated for an Emmy for Succession. And so it's interesting to see that family dynamic here. But this attic is epic. Did you have any idea what the what this flag was above the bed? Because we see this later on in the movie as well, where it's like this four star flag with blue and white. Yeah, man, I have no idea. I what I did look up was uh the cost of the pizza. So you mentioned it was one twenty two fifty. I will say, like some stuff inflates at a higher rate than others. So I I don't really think the food prices have really inflated because like you said, that works out to like $10 a pizza. I think that's pretty reasonable. You could probably still get that today. I would think like, you know, $10 for a pizza doesn't sound crazy to me, but if you put it into an inflation calculator, it tells me that it would be about $287. But I feel like that's not quite the same when it comes to food prices. No way. Yeah, for that. <laughs> yeah, there's no way. I mean, you could probably, I don't know. I, I just got to do a discussion with my father in law about food prices where he basically put a piece of pie uh, around like $18 a pop. But in my experience, I mean, I just got a gluten free pizza piece? on a coupon. One or, piece? No, a pie. Like a. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. A full pie, I should say. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was around $10 even just for like a gluten free pizza. But I don't know. I guess if you're getting a super large, you're probably looking at maybe. $18 for like a gigantic sheet type pizza. So that price definitely, it seems like inflation hasn't hit the pizza market as highly as many other things, such as the McAllister song. Yes, totally. But I do need to ask, did you find out what the flag is about? Yeah, I looked it up. Just It was on Reddit and I guess it's Chicago, Illinois flag, which is kind of weird. I didn't know cities had their own flags, but I guess that's a thing. But it's it was weird because you see it above the bed, which is kind of odd that you'd see it above someone's bed. And then you also see it on the police officer's uniforms later on. So I guess that makes more sense. I just couldn't reconcile why that same flag would be above a bed. It just seemed very weird to me that you'd put a city flag above the bed, but they're really coming in on the the Chicago references and whatnot here. Yeah. The city flags are definitely a thing. We have a city flag for Pittsburgh anyway, which basically represents, um, the fort that used to be here, Fort Pitt, that the city's named after. 
and then the three rivers at the point, which is the location of the of the fort uh, where uh, the uh, Allegheny and Monongahela rivers come together to form the Ohio River at the point in Pittsburgh, also known as Point State Park. Highly recommended if you're ever in town. Well, I've never seen the Cleveland flag, so I literally have no idea, <laughs> I have no idea what it is at all. I will say what I do know is the Italian flag, which is kind of cool. The The pizza delivery guy has like a nice jacket on with the Italian colors, which I appreciated and loved. loved it. it is Little Nero's, right? Is that what they called it? Little Nero's? Yeah, Little Nero's. It's a and... play on Little Caesars, you know, because but obviously Nero, not as much of a well-remembered uh, figure as Caesar. Uh, Nero being one of the worst uh, emperors of the Roman times. Well, I was going to ask you about that because to me, obviously Little Caesar's was one of my favorite pizzas growing up when we stopped going to the mall and ordered out for home, we would get little Caesars. And so that obviously I immediately thought of little Caesars when it was little Nero's and I was kind of interested. Okay. I, I remember Nero. Like I remember Nero being kind of a bad guy. I remember him basically horrible martyring early Catholics like Peter and Paul and basically just terrible. And so I was hoping, you know, you'd add some history insight here, but of course he's this completely erratic driver, Again, swerving down the road, zooming in. I know they have the 20 minutes delivery or free sign on their car, so that could also be a part of it. But it, it made me wonder if maybe that was connected as well, where they wanted to highlight a little bit about the the emperor a little bit in terms of <laughs> using the pizza delivery guy to kind of emphasize that. Because they chose Nero for a reason outside. It could have been any other emperor, right? Yeah, he's he's definitely one of the most one of the worst remembered, uh, known at least in myth. Might not quite be accurate uh, for fiddling when a fire broke out in the city of Rome and was burning it down. It's, it's a rough character. Um, I do think it's funny that he runs into their statue. It's almost like toppling the emperor's statue a little bit. But um, yeah, little Nero uh, definitely not would not be my choice. I would go with Little Caesars any day. I'm a fan. I advocate for Little Caesars. People think that oh, it's it's like it's no good because it's so cheap. And I would always recommend it. It's hard to make a bad pizza. Uh, I think Little Caesars does a very good job for the price that you pay. And uh, I always loved the commercials with the little cartoon Caesar guy. And uh, they had in Kmart, I believe, they had the little Caesars inside of those sometimes. And sometimes I'd hit those up whenever we'd go shopping. So it was it was a good time. Pizza, pizza. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it, it takes a true Italian in order to understand. I, I worked on that like a long time. Yes. A lot of prep for that. I got to say about this pizza incident with Kevin not getting cheese and tirade, everything about this scene, a little bit I could connect with, with my own kids. They're the same way, man. They don't like stuff on their pizza. Kevin mentions he doesn't like the olives and onions and stuff. My kids are the same way. My son even now doesn't even want pepperoni on it. It's just cheese. And so basically we go, we'll go to Costco and get a, a cauliflower pizza, but they only have like a Supreme there. And my daughter takes everything off of it just to make it cheese. We'll go to any place, cheese, got to be cheese. And if they don't have cheese, they're not going to eat it. And so it's very particular. And so for Kevin not to get his pizza, I would think you could pick some stuff off from it. It's not like the alternative where you have cheese pizza and you want olives. So I think there's some reasonableness here where maybe Kevin's kind of overreacting, but definitely 
I understood Kevin's plight here about the kind of pizza he wants. I'm definitely not like that at all. I, I'm very much, hey, whatever we're having, there are very few exceptions, but I'm not too picky when it comes to my pizza. I'm thinking now I'm getting like an Alfredo chicken bacon from Domino's on occasion. <laughs> I'm, I'm just exploring all the different pizzas I can. I used to go to the buffets and just try all, even dessert pizzas. I would try there too. So I'm not picky at all about my pizza. What about you? Not remotely. I, you know, aside from being a vegetarian, but that's, you know, it's not because I don't like meat. I, I, you know, I used to eat it constantly. I, especially pepperoni, pepperoni was one of my favorite foods, but that's just more of a, of a moral stance for me. But as far as actually enjoying the toppings, man, I would eat all of it. You know, anything that's on there nowadays, since I tend with toward the vegetables, you know, I always like not getting olives. I cannot even understand that for a second because I love olives there. That's like my top topping, if you will. I guess what I would like to get a lot of times is green olives with mushrooms. That's sort of my go-to. If they don't have green, I'll take black. And then obviously they charge more for more toppings. So if I was feeling like spending a ton of money, maybe I'd put some banana pepper on there. Maybe I'd put some uh, some green pepper on there. You know, th- there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I even liked anchovies. So I'll pretty much do anything. I mean, talk of three topics. We don't got McAllister money, man. I mean, you got to really <laughs> dig into the piggy bank here for that bacon. No, I mean, we're, we're nowhere near that. So, you know, we're not flying to France getting three topping pizzas here. No way. So in that way, I connected with Kevin, understanding at least my kids' plight. I hope that their their palates will expand like ours have. I know I'm not even at the green olives phase yet. It's a little bit too much for me, but hopefully I'll get it's, there. You'll get there. Trust me, you'll get there. The other person I connected with here was Kevin's mom, Kate, and how she handled the situation because my son will still – it used to be a lot worse, but he will still occasionally do that where something will just really rile him up and he doesn't yet – quite understand how to control his emotions. And so we call it basically regulating. He needs to regulate his body, deal with the anger or whatever he's feeling, because the worst thing you can do at that moment is pile on because he's not really thinking straight. His his amygdala is going off. He's not thinking straight. So she's doing the proper thing here. Take him out of the situation. So people just aren't saying terrible things back and forth without thinking, put him in the attic, give him some time. That's what my son does. I used to be the same way too. I used to scream into a pillow and talk to myself about how upset I was about X, Y, or Z about my parents. And then once that's gone, I'm like, okay, I'm fine. And that's how my son is. He comes down, he'll then snuggle like nothing ever happened. And so that's the proper thing to do. Remove him from the situation, get him out. And I trust, I mean, Kevin's eight years old. I hope my son's not doing that in two years, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. The final thing here is not just the parents' perspective on this scene. Here I am destroying the uh, the childhood joy that maybe you were feeling in this. But that windstorm, man, really triggering for me. I currently have damage on the siding of my house from a windstorm where a tree limb broke off and just smashed off four shingles, four pieces of siding from my house. It's still just a gap there. It is getting fixed along with my roof. But man, wind damage from storms, that was from a hailstorm, by the way, a different storm. So I'm thinking as, as a homeowner here, having to deal with that, windstorms are notorious for knocking out electric X, Y, or Z. They just are absolutely damaging for that. Although I will say that snow piling has actually been worse for our trees. We probably had a few entire trees come down just from accumulation of snow. I felt the plight here of the city dealing with this type of windstorm. And yeah, 
once those limbs are breaking off, terrible things can happen. And it's really bad around here. I mean, once a windstorm happens, our streets are strewn with different limbs and stuff. And you just kind of hope, hey, it didn't go with tree limbs. <laughs> Hopefully, you just hope it didn't go through a window or cause terrible damage other than a bend on a gutter or or maybe some siding issues. <laughs> Man, I don't, we don't have that here, I don't think. Um, I, I don't really hear much about high, high speed windstorms out here. I don't know if it's because this is sort of a hilly area and it breaks up the wind or what. We've been not really hit with those so much. I will say the thing that really, and I'm with you on sort of having this homeowner's perspective now, uh, the wet bandits, how they leave the water going. I'm just thinking about the water damage and it's devastating, but that'll come up in a later scene. But uh, I'm with you as far as just feeling terrible for these homeowners. And these homeowners also have the issue now where they're responsible for this transportation. They're responsible for this trip. Who knows what Peter and Kate dropped on this trip and they slept in because they didn't have their alarm clocks. And then just chaos ensues. They have to get ready and get to the airport in time. So everyone's scrambling. Everyone's running around. And as they're loading up the transport with all the different luggage and whatnot, a random neighborhood kid kind of comes over and just moseys in. He gets into the car and starts going through all their stuff, rifling through all their stuff. So he's actually in the transport. And so when everyone's loaded in and they finally do a count of all the different kids Heather, one of the older girls, is actually in, responsible for this. She touches everyone's head and counts, which I think is like kind of a reasonable thing to do. But she touches the neighborhood kid. So in the total count of kids, that neighborhood kid was factored in. Obviously, he then gets out and goes back to his place. But there's potentially a, a miscalculation here as to how many kids are in transit going to the airport. Heather, did you count heads? 11, including me, five boys, six girls, four parents, two drivers, and a partridge in a pear tree. They end up zooming all the way there. They rush to the airport, and somehow they're able to rush in and make the flight on time. Everyone's happy. You know, Peter and Kate are next to each other, living luxuriously on this flight. They are in first class here, dining, and Kate says, I can't believe we made it. I hope we didn't forget anything, but she's finally... On the trip, everyone's super excited. Unfortunately, they did forget something, and that was Kevin. He wakes up alone, and he starts searching the house. No one's there. He checks everywhere, including the basement, which, again, is just storage for this family. There's so many different things down there. One thing of note is this furnace that kind of makes noise and lights up with fire, obviously heating the home, and that really scares Kevin. But he's just trying to find somebody in the house, anyone any one member of his family here that he can talk to, etc. He goes outside and he checks the garage. The garage is open. He sees that the cars are still there. So he assumes they never drove to the airport. So he's very curious here. And then he sits down at the kitchen table and he kind of realizes, oh yeah, when I went to bed last night, I wished that I made my family disappear. And then we kind of get this showcase of him thinking about his family and, and all the things that they had said to him, all the mean things. I made my family disappear. Kevin, you're completely helpless. You know, Kevin, you're what the French call les incompetents. Kevin, I'm going to feed you to my tarantula. Kevin, you are such a disease. There are 15 people in this house, and you're the only one who has to make trouble. Look what you did, you 
joke. I made my family disappear. Yeah! He's reminiscing about those, and their faces are kind of popping up on the screen with kind of a blurriness to them to show that this is his thought process here. He's imagining all the terrible things that his family just did to him. He then zooms around the house with his elation at his newfound freedom. He jumps on the bed, eating popcorn, making a huge mess. He goes through all of Buzz's stuff. He finds some firecrackers, picture of Buzz's girlfriend. Buzz, your girlfriend. Woof. And a BB gun. He's rifling through everything. He then goes and he takes action figures, sets them up on a laundry chute, and shoots them with the BB gun, nailing them down. Perfect aim. Boom, boom, boom. One by one, knocks them all down. We then see this food graveyard of sorts of marshmallows and cherries and ice cream and everything. And we find out that Kevin has just this bowl of just massive ice cream, this massive ice cream conglomeration. And he's watching a movie. Purportedly, it's the same inappropriate movie that Uncle Frank refused to let Kevin watch before. It's a mobster movie and he ends up getting scared by it, but he's saying, hey, someone stop me, someone stop me. And no one's coming to get him. And he ends up getting scared by it and screams for his mom. I'm going to give you to the count of 10 to get your ugly, yellow, no good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. All right, Johnny, I'm sorry. I'm going. One, two, ten. (laughs) So he's actually scared. Maybe he shouldn't have watched it in the first place. Maybe Uncle Frank was exercising some judicious behavior here. But at the point that Kevin says mom screams for help about how scared he is about this mobster movie he had just watched, we cut to the airplane and Kate, the mom is sleeping and wakes up from her nap and something's wrong. She feels something is wrong in her gut that she forgot something. And so she's talking with the dad, Peter, they're going back and forth about different things that maybe she had forgotten talking about the coffee, talking about the garage. Did you close the garage? That's it. I forgot to close the garage. That's it. No, that's not it. What else could we be forgetting? Kevin! She realizes that she had forgotten Kevin. This airport uh, transport situation, they have these vans that come up to the house. I didn't actually know that airlines did that. Is that still a thing? Have you ever had that done? Or... Like, is that really a thing that they do? I've never heard of this. I felt like I was missing something. I was almost afraid to mention it because, yeah, that's one of the biggest issues that you have. It's like, okay, you have to pay for the long-term parking and you have to worry about luggage and trying to haul it all in. You actually almost have to reduce the amount of luggage that you have because it has to be able to fit in the car there and back. And here's the service that just does it all for you. I said, wow, that's pretty yeah. nice, but we don't got that McAllister money, man. That must be it. It's just not an option for, for us plebs. No, I guess we just don't have that. And like you said, these guys, the adults anyway, are flying first class. Are you kidding me? On an international flight to France, they're flying first class? I mean, I looked this up. Doing a first class uh, ticket, that could be 10 to 15 times the cost of a regular ticket. Could you imagine paying for that? I mean, it's insane. These guys are loaded. I mean... Maybe they should be sharing some of their wealth with the wet bandits here. I mean, if they can afford to just blow money on first class tickets on an international flight. I mean, it's blowing my mind here. Yeah, they get free champagne on a 
international flight. I mean, that's just yeah. a recipe for disaster. And Uncle Frank's there just chugging it and then stealing the crystal. He's like, this is real yes. crystal. So he's having he's, his wife stuff it into her purse. <laughs> <laughs> and like Uncle Frank, one other thing here, maybe one of the reasons I vibed with Uncle Frank a little bit is because when they're getting ready to leave, Frank says that they can't make the plane, that it's like impossible, basically. And then Kevin's dad says, hey, be positive. And Frank says, you can be positive and I'll be realistic. And that's exactly how I approach life. So I think in that regard, I kind of felt what Uncle Frank was talking about right here. (laughs) But Uncle Frank's wrong. I mean, they actually make it. It was 45 minutes. They had 45 minutes. And I assume, again, I'm not familiar with the map of Chicago, but I imagine, you know, coming out from Cleveland or Pittsburgh, they're clearly in a suburb of the city. And I'd imagine, hey, 45 minutes. I actually live a lot closer to the airport, but I, I would think a suburb typically from that to a major airport, you're looking at like 20, 25 minutes, roughly. I would say that's that's a reasonable expectation. Now, 45 minutes to go. This is before, obviously. Is before security the way that it is now, though. Yeah, Exactly. You could just run up. And so it's not absolutely insane plus who knows obviously you know plane times are always very interesting in terms of when they board and and when you're supposed to get there we just get there super early so you don't have to worry about it but in, in terms of when a plane well, actually leaves but... yeah but in terms of what a I mean, uncle actually... frank is clearly wrong like he's clearly <laughs> wrong but but if i said that it would be true like because i would actually know how long it would take and i would be correct but uncle frank here he doesn't have the skills, I guess, but, but that is how I would approach it. Like if, if there really was not enough time, I would be like, there's not enough time. And I, you just, you just cancel the trip and just not go. I would have to try. I'd have to try, man. There's too much. at I, stake. I'd probably try. I'd try, but I, I would know that it was futile though. But the, then the thing is though, that I guess a lot of times these flights don't leave on time. You know, I would make allowance for that, that there's probably a delay or something for me to get to the airport. I live a little further away from the city, but not that far. And our airport is not actually in Pittsburgh. It's in like a nearby town because of the way Pittsburgh's geography is. There's not really anywhere that you could build an airport like in the city. So it's like in the outskirts. So there's like a highway that actually goes directly pretty much from my house to the airport. So I think I could probably make it in 45 if I had to. But nowadays, like, I mean, I could probably make it there in like 25 minutes, maybe. But with the way security is, I don't think you're going to make it through. Yeah, security, definitely a game changer. But I imagine they have not only when they start boarding, but then they board by certain classes. And so could you get in? I'd have to try it. My issue with the futility here was the passports because Kate asked Peter where the passports are. He says in the microwave to dry them off. These were the passports that were covered in milk and Pepsi. I mean, doused in it. And here he threw to the microwave. (laughs) What? (laughs) Madness, I say. I mean, if you don't get that right away, basically you have to go page by page. And thankfully passport, maybe only a few pages. You probably just need your your one page where it shows your face, but you got to make sure you blot that out. It doesn't go crazy and run the ink or anything like that. The throat in a microwave just boggled my mind. I'm just imagining these passports stuck together, the pages ripping apart and they just go in. No problem. No issue. I guess you don't technically need the passport at this point to get on the airplane. You need it in Paris, but they never address it. I mean, they never address like the, the, the scenario with these passports, but what a nightmare that would be. 
throwing it in a micro. I just can't even fathom. No, I can't it's even. a disaster waiting <laughs> to happen. I mean, what a disaster. I'm going to do that with uh, my old passports. I'm doing that with my old passports. Yeah, see what happens. Let's run a test. Throw it up on the, on the Insta. See how it goes. Now, now I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> Little experiment. This is something that, you know, they would do on that. They would do on Mythbusters or something. Bring yeah. it in the Callisters <laughs> and see if it would pan out. <laughs> And Pepsi just wins all day because they get more product placement, you know, even from the Mythbusters. Um, yeah, so some stuff in the house. There is an iced tea poster also in Buzz's room that I did not notice before. Not the drink, the wrapper. Oh, I was, I was wondering. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was pretty great. Um, there is a scary furnace in the basement. Uh, that I do remember that shot of the furnace, like it's a monster with a mouth opening and closing. That freaked me out a little bit as a kid. I did notice that the movie, okay, so it's called Angels with Filthy Souls. This is not a real movie. It was shot for this movie, and they actually made a sequel in Home Alone 2 that is called Angels with Filthier Souls. Um, So that is a fun little fact there. Um, I do appreciate the the mobster vibes. I always enjoy that. We see the Pepsi again. Uh, more product placement here. He has some sort of snack or cereal that's called Crunch Gators that he's eating as well, which I've never heard of. I'm assuming they just made it for the movie. It's probably not real, but I don't know. Obviously, sledding down the stairs, an iconic moment right there. I uh, can't say I've ever tried it myself, and I now have a one-story house, so I probably won't be trying it any time in the future. Um, but that is a stunt that looks pretty sweet. And I will note that I did watch a short feature. There is a series on Netflix that is called The Movies That Made Us. And one of the movies they covered was Home Alone. And honestly, it wasn't as interesting as I'd hoped. It focused primarily just on the production. They talked to the director and guys that worked on it. It didn't really have much to do with the actors or the story. And I'm not really the type that gets real interested in like the nitty gritty of how you put a movie together. It's not really my thing. But uh, they did have some interesting facts. All the stunts were done by stunt doubles. Uh, so for Kevin, but also the Wet Bandits. That's actually interesting because I'm, I was wondering that. It's it's pretty obvious. You're not going to have Joe Pesci doing some of the stuff he does with some of the falls he takes of this. That would be pretty brutal for, for him to have to do that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was not doing that. Pesci actually, I mean, it's amazing that he agreed to do the film in the first place, uh, I think, in some ways. But he was on board. He did have some prima donna-like demands, it sounds like, where they wanted him to have a call time at 7, and he refused because he wanted to go golfing in the morning, so he would come in at 9 instead. But hey, I'm glad that he's in the film, although I would not like to work with somebody who has that sort of ego, I think. Well, this is my definitive Joe Pesci movie, so he needs to buckle up. I know he maybe maybe mm-hmm. this was a cash grab or something after Goodfellas, who knows, but I don't view him as a mobster like I would uh, in Kevin's movie. I view him for this role as a wet bandit, so I don't know if that was his intention to be this good in a film. <laughs> he, he may have <laughs> just tr- been trying to you know pay a bill or something, and then lo and behold, he made this iconic movie, and that might be the role that a lot of us remember him for. 
Oh yeah, I'm with you entirely. This is the one that I know him for. I mean, I've seen Goodfellas and whatever else, but I this is the one that I associate with him by far. Um, the the movie was not that expensive at all. They made it originally. It was supposed to be a ten million dollar film. They went over budget to around fourteen point seven, and then when they tried to get Warner Brothers to approve the budget, they refused. They wanted them to cut it down to at a maximum thirteen point five, which they refused to do. And they ended up pitching the movie and then actually producing it through 20th Century Fox instead. So Warner Brothers missing out big because this movie actually goes on to be number one for like several months. Uh, It made over $264 million off of this 14.7 budget. And Warner Brothers missed out on all that because they didn't want to foot another 1.2 in order to make the film the way that they wanted to make it. I feel like that's in every movie's story that's really good is that they had to deal with financing at some point and really nitpick and even reduce the quality. I guess it's kind of like hitting a parlay where they just kind of luck yeah. out. But they probably swung and missed so many times that they, they have these types of reservations about doing it. Because I could definitely see if you had an unlimited budget, the kind of stuff you do. But yeah, I mean, how, how is this movie... How are you having a fight over funding for this movie? It's it's very much on-site locations. There's not a whole lot of explosions or anything like that. So it's kind of shocking that it even has that type of budget. But obviously you get John Williams involved and Christopher Columbus and lots of great components to it that I can understand. They probably had to build the set for the Paris airport and everything as well. And who knows what other stuff they had actually construct for the movie. I know they actually did construct the treehouse in there for the movie in the house, although that's minor. I wonder what else they had to do to actually outfit this house for filming. Oh, they didn't film in the house. So this was something I learned as well. They, they used the exterior shots, but they actually set up in an abandoned school and they used the gymnasium in the school for building the house. So they literally built all the interior of the house inside of this gym, like this two story, set and then they filmed everything in there aside from the treehouse i think because that was probably at the at the actual house i would assume since it's outside but the all the interior shots were done on the set inside of the gym that sounds similar to christmas story where very little of it takes place in the actual house itself you just get the kind of the exterior shots and whatnot it makes sense. You got to set up. You got to make sure you have enough room for all the different stunts you're doing. You got to make sure you have your lighting, your sound, and whatnot. And so that makes far more sense. You don't have to block out a whole suburb or whatever. You can kind of do it in, in an isolated location. So that all adds up. And yeah, that, that that would cost a fortune to do that. And again, I love that. I love that they did that back in the 90s. So much more interesting than just CGIing a house or whatever they would do nowadays. Oh, yeah. It's practical effects are always the way to go. Um, but. Yeah, so that was all in that feature. If you're into that kind of stuff, like the actual nitty-gritty of it, it's probably a really good one to watch. If you're into it for like the story and the theme and the actors and all of that, it's don't bother because they they hardly interview any of the actors. But if you want to hear from the director, all that sort of thing, yeah, check it out. Movies that made us. Part of the movies that made us is the movie within the movie here, the mobster movie we're accustomed to. And so Kevin finally gets his ability to watch the movie. And all I could think about is the first thing he does as he realizes he's alone is he just kind of splurges everywhere. 
And I think it's because honestly, he's been deprived of so much stuff. And this is constantly something I deal with as a parent. And it's hard to kind of draw the line because probably you don't want your kid watching a mobster movie, right? So you do want to have a line somewhere, but at the same time, you also don't want there to be this massive recoil the second they have the freedom or whatever, where they're like, Oh, I can finally do this. I want my kids to feel safe in our home. I want our kids to feel freedom. I don't want them to be stifled. I have certain safeguards in place, but I want them to experience ice cream. Right. So when they're alone, they're not like, Oh, I can finally do this. I want them to feel like they have a reasonable amount of freedom here. And so that's what I was thinking about in this scene is that it seems like Kevin needs a little bit more of that. Give him some freedom to make an ice cream concoction give him some junk food occasionally, do it with reasonable guidelines. That's my approach as a parent. And it's hard because you do have some guidelines, right? And so I guess my hope is that me having wider guidelines where I allow good degree of culture and a good degree of exposure to different X, Y, and Z, but within reason that there's not going to be as much of a recoil from that. Whether or not I'm right, I don't know, but that's my perspective to kind of avoid this type of situation from Kevin where he feels he has to go scorched earth on all the things he couldn't do before. It's pretty well documented in any types of studies that ones that are stifled too much just react against that eventually. And that it's something that is pretty unhealthy, really, um, if they're not given freedom to sort of push and explore boundaries a little bit. Uh, So I think that's a fairly accurate position to take. I think that's a smart position to take there. From my point of view, I will say that my dog uh, watches everything that I watch and he's been fine with it so far. No adverse effects at all. And he seems to really enjoy mobster movies anything that is really that I watch, he seems to enjoy. So I'm glad that he's able to partake and uh, he's able to not go out and, uh, you know, act out what he sees in the movies. He, he keeps it here at home. One other thing I needed to bring up is in the airplane scene with the adults, whenever the mom realizes that she left him, she makes this comment where she's like, what kind of mother am I? And one thing that I love from this scene, and one of the reasons that I love the performance of Uncle Frank in the movie, is because he says, if it makes you feel any better, I forgot my reading glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I thought that was amazing. (laughs) But prior to that, you know, the mom is trying to think of, what did they forget? She feels like they forgot something. And eventually they come up to the point, her and the dad, that, oh, he forgot to close the garage. So what did you think about that? I mean, how did that make you feel? Well, Uncle Frank, obviously, just they, they give him that look of like, now is not the time. I kind of feel that way a little bit myself because with that garage, I was triggered, man. Like having the garage left open is a big problem for me. I'll go 10 minutes to wherever I'm going and then think, did I close the garage? And then turn around to make sure I close the garage. That and locking doors are my two things that if I don't know for sure they've been done, I would do that. So if I'm on that plane and I think the garage door's open, that's going to be a big problem for me the whole trip. So I would be doing whatever's possible to fix that issue. The dad's so chill about it. And I guess, yeah, he has a hard problem because it's hard to bring up that anxiety when your kid's not with you, right? But it's, you know, I, I hear you. I, I, he, I hear that stress in leaving the garage door open. That's what I want to be heard on. I want to be heard on that. Obviously, it's not to exclude the anxiety of missing Kevin, but I did want to point that out that, yeah, it's that, that alone would be a huge problem, let alone forgetting your kid. 
Now, I think the garage door is pretty important here. I do the same thing. Um, typically, when I leave in the morning, I go. I always go out through the garage, not through the front door. So I open the door and then I close it again. And the situation is that sometimes I think, oh, did I close it or not? So then I'll I'll go back around the block again and check it. It happens occasionally. I've never had it where I've been really far away and thought it. I normally think of it like almost immediately for whatever reason. So then I'll turn around and, and check. And then part of that for me is just that if the garage door is open, then the then the only door that's stopping somebody and really it's not about people getting in i'm afraid of my dog getting out of the house because then the only door that's stopping him from getting out is the kitchen door and so my wife leaves for work after me so there's like a possibility that if i left the garage open she opens the kitchen door and he chases her that he could go outside so that's what my real fear is with that so i'm totally with you I would probably go be trying to to call some neighbors, find some way to get this garage door figured out. I just imagine the dad being like, okay, you go call about Kevin. I'll call about the garage door. Yeah. <laughs> He's like BTW, the garage door. Oh yeah. And you know what else is nice? Kevin doesn't have to worry about this stuff or, or six year old Matt. You, you wouldn't have to worry about leaving a garage door open. It's just not something you thought about. You just were enjoying the movie home alone. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that I saw. Like, I, I got hit with the nostalgia, but there's also a lot of stuff that I noticed and saw that I didn't comprehend or, <laughs> like, really get when I was a kid. So it's kind of fun to go back and see those uh, elements that that you missed before. So Kevin's just living his best life after he sleds down the stairs, just doing whatever he can with his newfound freedom. We're interposed here with the airplane scene of Kate, the mom, still in shock, still wondering, am I a terrible mother? How could this happen? What do you do? I mean, you're in a plane. There's really not much you can do here. And so she's just absolutely in a dismal state of mind. We cut back to the McAllister house. It's at nighttime. So we see the policeman from before. This is Joe Pesci's character and another man in the car together. Just for clarification purposes, Joe Pesci, the policeman here, is actually a robber, part of the Wet Bandits. His character's name is Harry, and he's with his partner, Marv. And so I'll call them Harry and Marv and the Wet Bandits from now on. But he was a police officer going into people's homes, asking questions, finding out where they were going, leaving out of town. Through this intel process, he learned that five homes in the single block were all going on vacation. Five families gone on one block alone. They all told me from their own mouths. <laughs> it's almost too easy. Check it out. All the houses with nobody home have automatic timers on their lights. But I got it all figured out. Watch this. So he's there. Harry's sitting there with Marv. And he's predicting when all the lights in the neighborhood are going to turn on. It's a security measure, so people will think they're at the house. But it's not going to fool Harry and Marv. They know exactly what's going on here. They are ready to burgle. One specific house of this group is the McAllister home. Marv calls it the silver tuna because of how much wealth is in that house. Harry kind of goes on. He's got these visions of all the different money. They have everything from securities to rich X, Y, and Z. He just knows this home has got a lot of money. He really, really wants to hit up this McAllister house. That's kind of his, his white whale, his golden goose, if you will. 
they take out their crowbars and cheers each other because they're about to make a lot of money during this Christmas season. We cut to Kevin watching The Grinch. He's surrounded by all the junk food he ate. He must have a huge bellyache because he's probably eaten everything in the house. The wet bandits then park at the McAllister's home. They're doing a kind of reconnaissance mission here at the home, kind of seeing what's going on. But Kevin notices their shadows going through the windows, and so he's aware. He follows them, realizing they're going to the basement. And then Kevin actually flicks on the basement light to kind of shoo him away. Harry's a little bit confused here because he knows, obviously, the light functions of the house. He knows that the light shouldn't be on. And so something's going on here. And so they kind of leave, only believing that they're going to come back to investigate further later on. After Kevin had flicked on the light, he ran upstairs and kind of hid under the bed. He's terrified, all alone, strange people coming to his home. He doesn't know what's going on, but he realizes that he is the only person in the house. He must be the man of the house. And so he he kind of gets out, puffs his chest out. This is ridiculous. Only a wimp would be hiding under a bed. And I can't be a wimp. I'm the man of the house. Unfortunately, at this time, we see our old man with a shovel, in which case Kevin just immediately freaks out and runs right back into the house to hide under a blanket. From here, we cut to the airport as the family has finally arrived in France. Yes, we have to use the phone, please. Madame, I'm sorry, it's an emergency. We really have to make a call. Please, our brother's home alone. The mom, Kate's running to a payphone. The whole family is running to a payphone in order to make some phone calls. But again, remember, the phone lines were knocked out from the electric storm. The electric was turned on by the mechanic. However, the phone lines are still out. And so her decision then is to call the police station near her home for them to send somebody to investigate the house to make sure Kevin's okay. They also tried calling all the different neighbors, but everything went straight to voicemail. Everyone, again, five people on the block going on vacation. No one's home for the holidays. So they're going to the police station. After kind of going back and forth with the police officers, wondering what's wrong with the kid being home, etc., they don't really understand the gravity of the situation. They decide that, hey, they're just going to placate this, this crazy woman and send a police officer to investigate the home. The cop gets there and he knocks on the door and he doesn't really know why he's there, but he does it anyway. Kevin obviously is still scared. He's not going to answer the door, not knowing who's there. And so the cop leaves thinking, hey, this is a waste of my time. I'm not going to do this anymore. The family thinking the police officers checked the house. They have, they're swaged somewhat, but they still want to find a way to get back home for Kevin. But unfortunately, they're not able to really get a ticket because of the Christmas time traffic. Obviously, it's, it's short notice and things are booked for the holidays. It turns out that they can get two tickets on Friday, which is two days away from the current date. And the dad, Peter, just says, let's wait for that. We're not going to get anything sooner. There's nothing else we can do. Look, honey, the kids are exhausted. You are exhausted. There's absolutely nothing more that we can do in this airport. Now, I say we go over to Rob's, and that way we can call the police again, and they can get back to us. Peter, Kevin is home all by himself. I'm not leaving here unless it's on an airplane. It's possible that there could be a standby or someone doesn't show up, et cetera, where she can get a ticket. And for her, that's enough just to stay in the airport the entire time. But obviously everyone's tired. So the dad says, listen, you can stay here, wait for the ticket. We'll take everyone back home just to rest. Everyone's exhausted, hungry, et cetera. And so she's staying at the airport indefinitely. And the family is going back to the hotel to at least make some phone calls or eat or whatever while waiting for a status update from Kevin. 
Well, we continue our tradition of useless police uh, from pretty much every movie that we've ever, or a show we've ever covered. I think that when I was a kid, this might sound crazy, but I don't think I, I really connected the dots that Harry was the policeman at the time. And they even show his gold tooth and everything. Quick thing about that. Do people do that? Like, get gold teeth, I mean? Like, I've never actually seen a person with a gold tooth, but I feel like it was a common trope in, like, TV when we were growing up and cartoons and stuff that people had golden teeth. Have you ever seen one in real life? No, I agree with you. I've, I've never seen that before. My kids sometimes, when they were younger, thought I had some sort of metal in my teeth, but that was just for my fillings. Back then, they used the metallic fillings to fill in your teeth. And so if you look at my molars and stuff, I had so many cavities from oddly enough, probably drinking Pepsi, mostly Sunkiss, to be honest with <laughs> you. But I had so many fillings as a kid growing up that my molars in the back of my teeth are all filled with like metallic stuff that you might think, oh yeah, is that, is that a gold tooth or whatever? No, it's just a filling. But yeah, the idea that you're going to replace a tooth with something that's gold, I don't know, man, that, that seems kind of weird. I mean, maybe they're worried about coloration or something like that. It doesn't even seem to me like that's a tooth you would need to replace in general, but it's, it's a convenient way for them to kind of stand out and to connect that he was the policeman. It allows Kevin to kind of recognize that part of him in addition to his voice. They don't really tell you, hey, I'm the policeman. So it is kind of interesting that you wouldn't pick up on that because he does. He looks different and he does have a hat on his head. So he's kind of hiding a little bit. The hat's different. So you get just a little bit of his face and some of his voice. So you kind of got to piece things together because they don't really say, oh, yeah, I can't believe I got those people to believe I was a police officer. They really expect you to know that without really telling you. Yeah. And, you know, the wet bandits here. I mean, <laughs> what an epic duo these guys are. Um, Harry and Marv. I will say one other thing I learned from that feature is that they originally cast... Enough, well, they, they originally cast Dan Stern, who does play Marv, but then he rejected the role at some point over money, so they brought in a guy named Dan Roebuck, and they actually had him do some screen tests with Pesci, and they were going to move forward with him, but I guess they didn't click, and it just, the chemistry wasn't there, so they ended up bringing Dan Stern back in, and so we end up with our Marv here, so I'm glad that they ended up how they did with that. One thing that I thought was great, another nice old tech reminder of the 1990s here, one of the big-ticket items that Harry talks about uh, scoring in, in this house is VCRs. So, I mean, that's amazing. You know, he, he wants to get these very pricey, sought-after, black, you know, probably black market sale uh, VCRs. He's going to make a lot of cash off of the black market on these things. And it also makes me wonder how many VCRs are in the McAllister house. Because Harry specifically says VCRs. You know, we only had one in our entire house. So I want to know... I'm guessing that the McAllisters are flush with VCRs and probably with tapes as well, which were pretty expensive back in the day. I actually remember going to buy our first VCR because I was a little kid. I remember my parents, we went out to the store, picked it up and brought it home. It was this big deal because we never had anything like it. And nowadays, I don't even know if you can, like, I, I guess if you go to thrift shops, you can find like combination like VCR DVD players and probably regular VCRs. 
But I feel like they're even maybe a little bit hard to find now just because of how old they are and how long they've been obsolete. We actually had a conversation about this not too long ago, and we were looking up to how to buy a VCR. And yeah, you could buy them new and whatnot. And it's an interesting thing. And it's something that maybe I'll have to do later on just to kind of, because unfortunately all the physical media does die out at some point. So that's the kind of the benefit of streaming. But then the problem with streaming is they can just pull something out at any given time. So part of me wants to be hoarding this kind of culture, because if you live in a world where you don't have internet or, you know, home alone gets taken out of streaming services for whatever reason, you, you, you want to have a hard disc. You want to have a hard VCR tape. You want to have something, some way to be able to view this iconic piece of culture. It, it constantly is, is a worry of mine that future generations might not be able to watch something like this. And any way you can kind of protect that, you do that. And I'm sure that's exactly what Harry's thinking here in the McAllister home. Well, you know what? So there's this mall near my house that has, it's one that was, you know, fallen on hard times uh, in recent years. And so a lot of the spaces are filled by kind of random stores. And one of the stores is this like big thrift shop. It's like a antique slash thrift shop, basically. And they have an entire wall of VHS. It's just tons of them. And then they have like all these these stacks of DVDs and and a little bit of Blu-ray, but it's mainly DVDs and VHS. And I was just there this past weekend and I was just looking around. I mean, I think the DVDs are like $2 each. The VHS is probably even less. And I was just thinking of like, I could, you know, just clean this place out and have like a ridiculous amount of media in my house. If I want, I could basically build a, video rental store in my basement, you know, with, with their inventory. I mean, and I was actually like, in a way I was kind of tempted to do it because I was like, they're pretty much giving this stuff away. Yeah. Buy the VHS dip, man. You know, it could be making a comeback. I know Blu-rays and discs, they, they're notorious for scratching. I know editing, I always go to the library to get a movie and I would say almost half of them don't work anymore just because as you use them, they get scratches and whatnot. I'm not entirely sure with VHSs how much they hold up because obviously we didn't grow up in a generation where we would have bought a disc or we would have bought a VHS rather and maintained it over time to see what continuous use would do for it. But yeah, I mean, new DVDs, Blu-rays, those discs, man, they get torn apart a lot of times in these players some, somehow. I don't, I don't know how that works, but they get torn apart. VHS gets worn out, too. The tape warps over time. Like, you'll notice they might be more durable. I could be wrong. Um, I guess it depends how bad the scratches are on the DVDs, because at a certain point, you can't even repair that. You know, it's just impossible. Well, I think that shows your wealth that you could buy more VCRs than the McAllister's owned over years because of just d- diminution of of the actual product itself. <laughs> yeah, that's, if if wealth was measured in access to VHS, I'd be I'd be way up there. <laughs> the McAllister capitalism paying off. We know yeah. we know they at least have the one in the kitchen because they use that for little Nero's later on, and the one in the living room, and probably one at least in their bedroom and whatnot. So. At least several. I do love that you mentioned the incompetence here of the police department. And that <laughs> you have the trope here with the donuts. That donut scene, man, that scene in particular sticks with me. It always makes me want a donut. Just the way that Officer Ballsack sitting there with, with his donut eating on the phone. 
it's interesting. He has a stack of three donuts, these Boston cream donuts. So he does yeah. not care at all about what's going on. He just I wants love to be Boston pot- cream, by the way. Like <laughs> that's my donut right there. That if I could pick one donut for the rest of my life, it's Boston cream. See, my wife's the same way. We just had a, a donut Sunday after mass, and yeah, that's the one she went with me. I'm a blueberry glazed kind of guy. I'm a peanut. Actually, my favorite's the peanut ones, but they don't really make them anymore due to peanut allergies. The last thing I wanted to talk about was your thoughts on kind of the two parents here, because we have this different dynamic on how to handle Kevin missing. I kind of probably can figure out where you are on this, but just for the sake of discussion here, we have the father who's basically like, listen, there's nothing else we can do here. We've got everyone hungry, everyone flustered, tired. Let's go back to the hotel. We can't do anything more here. Let's go back recover a little bit doing what we can, but by and large, we're probably getting this flight in two days. Kevin's going to be okay. There's nothing bad that's going to happen because of our neighborhood, etc. Kevin's smart. He's eight, whatever. And then you have the mom, right? The mom is the one who said, I can't do anything outside of in pursuit of Kevin, even if it doesn't accomplish anything, even if it's not productive for anything, just her anxiety, it would be so overwhelming that she would feel the need to do it. So kind of what did you at least think of these parents? Where do you think you would be in given the situation? Are you more on the side of, of the mom here or the dad? I mean, I'm 110% on the dad's side on this. I There's no logical reason to stay in the airport. And one thing that we will see at the end of the movie is that the mother goes through all of these struggles in order to like get there as soon as possible. And then everyone else gets there like a second afterwards. So all of her, you know, odyssey, completely a waste of time. And they would have all made it there just the same if they had just waited until Friday anyhow. And I noted in one of the scenes when they're in the hotel, because we see the hotel like once and the family's all in the hotel just sort of hanging out there. And it's like, why? Like, you're in Paris. Like, go out and do some stuff. I mean, I mean, I could get, okay, maybe, like, the dad or the mom stays around, like, you know, trying the phone or whatever. But, like, why are all his brothers and sisters and his extended family and, like, his aunt and uncle or whoever? Like, what good does it do? Like, you're, you're wasting all this money. Like, you've spent a tremendous amount of money on this trip. You're only there for a few days, which is weird. Like, if you're going to spend so much money to go to Europe. You don't just go for a few days. But anyway, they're all in the hotel, and they're just wasting their time getting no experience from it whatsoever. I mean, what's the point? It doesn't make any sense. Leave one person in the hotel, and then everyone else, like, at least make the most of it. I I don't understand. I think practically speaking, you're probably right. And I think in some respect, you have to consider the the needs of the other kids as well and, and factor that in, especially depending on how they feel, right? I mean, if they're able to go and enjoy it, to be able to enjoy it. I got to say, I am with the mom here in the sense that there are certain things that I'm unable to compartmentalize. This would be one of them. And so it would be impossible for me to go and enjoy X, Y, or Z with this in the back of my mind. I would be sick the whole time have anxiety the whole time because I think some things are just so big that you can't ignore. And as bad as the garage is, maybe I could compartmentalize that and still enjoy my trip, but this probably not. And that's the benefit of being married, right? That's the benefit of being married. And I think maybe the dad feels that same way, but this is exactly what would happen in my life where that's what my wife would be doing. She'd be the one at the airport saying, I'm going to stay here. I'd wait on standby, worrying, carrying all that burden for our family 
Whereas she would want me to go and try to do the other side on the other side of it. Hey, we have all these kids, they need to be fed, et cetera. You handle that part of it. And then me knowing that everything's being done through my wife to take care of Kevin, then I would maybe be able to have some of that compartmentalized where I'd be able to go and maybe do a trip or something, at least in the back of my mind, knowing full well that there's an adult in this situation in the family doing everything possible and that I couldn't do anything to change the outcome. I think in her mind, whether or not it changes the outcome doesn't really matter. It's her frame of mind of, am I doing what I think is the best way? Even if it's something small, even if it's something little, knowing if you could do that little bit more, you'd have to do that little extra thing just to be able to live with yourself. Even if it had a 0.0001% chance of success, if you knew there was a sliver of a chance that that could resolve the issue of getting your kid, making him safe, you're going to do that. And that's so that's why I understood the mom's perspective, but that's the beauty of having a marriage is that you can balance that out between parents. And so I think in this situation, I'd probably, while I would think like the mom, I think I'd end up being the dad because I would have my wife doing that for poor old Kevin. Of course, I would never leave my kid um, behind, but that's a separate thing. I, I it's a separate thing to discuss, of course, was even yeah, like, it, letting it Heather... sort of like, that, well, that's the thing is that it's, it is, I mean, we suspend the disbelief for the sake of the movie, but it is an outrageous sort of premise, uh, which, so it's sort of hard to think of it in realistic terms. I, I, I think realistically, you know, anybody would, would think like the mom uh, in that situation. I would say just from a logical like practical perspective, you have the rest of the family here in Paris. I mean, even if one of the people has to stay behind, take everybody else out, like make something of it. Don't just like waste the entire experience because you can't do anything anyway. So that's sort of where I'm coming at from the dad's point of view on that. And I think that obviously you, you wouldn't be able to compartmentalize it, but yeah, if you did have somebody working on the problem, which they do, then there's nothing else you can do anyway. And I think the dad's also assured because I think he understands his son and he understands the maturity of his son here. He thinks Kevin's going to be good just based on who he is as a person. And so he's the man of the house here and we're cutting to Kevin. He's kind of being the adult here. He's pretending basically to be his dad. And so he's getting showered. He's, he's ready for his morning. He's combing his hair. I wash my hair with the Don't Formula shampoo and use cream rinse for that just wash shine. I can't seem to find my toothbrush, so I'll pick one up when I go out today. Other than that, I'm in good shape. We have one of our one of the iconic shots from Home Alone where he puts the aftershave on his hands against his cheeks and screams because it obviously must have stung him in some capacity, irritated his skin or whatever. But Kevin here trying to be the man of the house, but again, still a kid. He also does not have a toothbrush, which will be an important thing to mention for later because he will go out and pursue it because he is getting ready for a day on the outside. He's going to try to be an adult. First thing he has to do as an adult before he can go shopping for his needed groceries, etc. And a toothbrush, though, he needs some cash. He needs some cash money. Doesn't have a credit card or money flying around. Can't go to the bank. And so he goes and pilfers Buzz's life savings. It's in Buzz's room. It's on top of a shelf, the very top, in a baseball tin. And Kevin just seems to remember. He knows exactly where this, this money is. So he goes directly to it prior to going shopping. And so rather than use a ladder, Kevin decides he's going to climb on the shelf and then grab the tin from the top. 
unfortunately, this doesn't work. And the entire shelf unit just collapses. Everything's in disarray. Kevin's happy because the tin's been found. It's got Buzz's life savings, so he's got the cash money. But we do see that a tarantula is walking around. The tank that the tarantula was in has smashed, and so the tarantula has been freed and is now roaming about the house. He grabs the money and he leaves the house, and on his way out, he sees a van in his neighbor's house. And it's a little bit suspicious because this neighbor is supposed to be in Florida, so why would their van still be there? Could it be the Wet Bandits? Indeed, of course, it is. The Wet Bandits are inside the neighbor's home, and they're robbing it. As they're robbing it, they hear a phone go off, and it goes straight to the voicemail, straight to the answering machine. Hi, you've reached the Murphys. Please leave a message after you hear the beep. Chuck, this is Peter McAllister again, and we're still in Paris at my brother's apartment. What that indicates to the Wet Bandits, of course, is that they are still in Paris. The McAllisters are still in Paris. They are not yet home. And so now they got to wonder, why did that light flick off in the basement? We don't know. But something's going on here. It's worth investigating again. We cut to Kevin at a department store. He's shopping for a toothbrush. He asks if the toothbrush is approved by the American Dental Association. While he's waiting for his answer, the clerks are kind of discussing with each other. The old man with the shovel comes up. He has a, a bandage wrap around his hand. It's bleeding. The blood's showing outside the bandage, and he slams it on the glass counter. And so obviously Kevin's terrified. He just kind of slowly backs away from the old man. He's slowly leaving the department store. And then when he feels he's at a safe distance, he bolts out of the department store to run away from the man. Wait, son, you have to pay for that toothbrush. Son? Son? Hey! Jimmy, stop that boy! So Jimmy, this this grocery clerk teenager goes out to try to chase Kevin. Jimmy makes eye contact with a police officer who's writing a, looks like a parking ticket and says to the police officer shoplifter this police officer, a very old, big man, uh, completely out of shape. And he's now tasked with chasing Kevin through a public park because that's where Kevin heads. It's basically a, a giant public pond where people are skating, having a good time in the snow and so Kevin zooms across the ice. This bulbous police officer is unable to maintain his balance on the slippery ice. And so he falls and Kevin has escaped. Kevin's walking alone back home, lamenting the fact that he's a criminal now that he's stolen a toothbrush. Supposed to be a little funny comic scene here. We cut to the wet bandits finishing another home. Marv has turned the sink on and clogged the drain. He basically plugged in the drain with a bunch of rags, turned the sink on so the water overflows all throughout the house. You did it again, didn't you? You left the water running, didn't you? What's wrong with you? Why do you do that? I told you not to do it. Harry, it's our calling card. Calling card. All the great ones leave their mark. We're the wet bandits. You're sick, you know that? You're really sick. So this is officially when they get the name, the wet bandits. Obviously, Harry says, you're being ridiculous. Why are you doing this? You're causing more damage than you need to, and you're leaving evidence. Why are you doing this? but Marv really wants that notoriety here. As the wet bandits are driving away from the home, they nearly run into Kevin walking down the sidewalk. Kevin and, and the car almost collide. Kevin then begins to walk away, and Harry decides to yell at Kevin, saying, hey, what are you doing? Look where you're going. Get out of the way. At this moment, Kevin looks his way and notices the gold tooth. And maybe he recognized the voice as well, but he definitely noticed that gold tooth. And so he knows, hey, this is the same 
police officer, right, who was in the house. And now he's here in this van leaving his neighbor's house who's not there. Something's going on here. Something suspicious. Kevin kind of lets on that he's a little suspicious. He gets scared and kind of starts walking away. Then he kind of speeds up, speeds up, and then he just does a dead-on sprint as the wet bandits are kind of tailing in to see which house he's going to. So maybe he belongs to the McAllister house. They're trying to investigate Kevin Darts. He ends up sprinting out of view from the wet bandits as they tail him, and it looks like he must have gone into a church. We see this beautiful church, very classic Catholic church, and there's a nativity scene hanging out. The wet bandits look and they say, oh, maybe he went into the church. Neither one of them wants to go in. Another funny little moment here. And they they zoom away. It turns out that Kevin had actually been hiding in the nativity scene as a shepherd in disguise. He pops out and he has escaped the wet bandits for now. When those guys come back, I'll be ready. He's obviously prepared. He understands something's going on and he needs to protect the house as the man of the house. The wet bandits then go to the McAllister house at night again to follow up on their investigation, and they hear a party going on. They hear music. They can see shadows of people moving around the house through the windows. Very odd. Very odd for a house that was previously abandoned to suddenly have a party. Turns out that Kevin's inside. We see him kind of maneuvering mannequins with strings and whatnot. He has a Michael Jordan cutout on a toy train. He has another mannequin on on the record player. He set up an entire scheme to make it seem like there's a party. But again, the wet bandits don't think it's possible, especially Harry. He thinks it's very strange that they would already be back from Paris so quickly when they just heard the voicemail from the father suggesting otherwise. So they still are not convinced that there are people at this house, but it seems like Kevin's at least won the first battle. Do you use aftershave? Because I've never used it in my entire life. So, I mean, obviously knowing just from being around that, yes, it famously can burn, but I've never experienced that myself. So is this something that you can empathize with Kevin about here? No. And I have the same opinion. I never understood that. I know growing up, my dad had some Old Spice aftershave. I don't think he actually used it ever. It had a very pungent smell. It was very liquidy. It was like a concentrate of smell. And it was always something that just like cologne that kind of overwhelms you. And I never understood the, the point of it. I guess it makes you smell not like the, the big Barbasol can or whatever, but I think it's really probably geared more towards the, the blade type razors where maybe... You would use the can of Barbasol that would smell really bad. And then maybe the reason Kevin was pretending it was agitating on his skin is that the skin would have been raw after a razor. And so that was maybe kind of the joke that using aftershave when you use like a big razor would, would be harmful because you kind of are really digging deep into the skin. Maybe this is abrogated by the electric razor. At the same time, we know Peter McAllister uses an electric razor. So I, I'm not entirely sure. It just seems like a cologne type thing that they marketed to make people smell X, Y, or Z. I don't even use cologne. I just use deodorant and nice smelling shampoo and soap. That seems sufficient for me. I mean, no one's told me otherwise. No, I've never done anything like that. Uh, You know, beard oil, never been into anything like that. I'm not really, I mean, you know, I I like to be clean. You know, I, I get my daily showers before work and everything, but all this extra like beautification and, and whatnot, it's, it seems like just like a money trap to me of, oh, now you need aftershave. Now you need cologne. Now you need these oils or whatever. It's like, where does it end? I, I'm not going to get sucked into that. No, I've even stopped using 
at least when I, I now use an electric razor because now that I have a beard, basically it's hard for me to edge with an actual bladed razor. And so I just use the electric one. It's a lot easier for me to trim around there and also trim the beard as well. I've moved on from the, uh, the Gillette Mach 12 or whatever, <laughs> or whatever they had. <laughs> I don't, I, I didn't even use when I was using the Gillette Mach threes, I didn't even use shaving cream there. I, I got off that and just used like liquid soap or whatever. And that was fine. I didn't see yeah. the need to get like the, the Barbasol can. It, it just, it's like a giant marshmallow on your face. And when it's you, ridiculous, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I think some guys just blow it out of blow shaving out of proportion. Like it's some Epic like quest that they're embarking on. I mean, you know, I've had a beard uh, since we were in college. I've used electric shavers my entire life. I've never had any type of aftershave or, whatever i mean it's just it's easy especially when you have to trim the beard you've got to have electric and so i think that uh yeah i don't know it is not my thing it's not my scene uh but kevin here you know creating uh probably the most iconic moment from the movie or one of the most and of course he keeps his hands on his face like the whole time, thus making it worse, like rather than actually moving his hands, like he just keeps the aftershave like as pressed against his skin as possible. So pretty funny comedic timing and style with the scene. Yeah, his hands are just lava, just searing onto his face or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Heaven forbid you're impeded. <laughs> Yes, it here, it here. He, whatever the aftershave is, obviously pales in comparison to whatever damage was caused to old man Marley because he's just bleeding out of his hand. And I can't believe they're so mad at Kevin taking a twenty-five cent toothbrush. Meanwhile, this guy has literally a gaping wound in his hand, blood seeping out of it, and he just slams it on the glass counter. They don't even look at him. They don't even care. I mean, no, and there's just... no explanation. We never find out what happened. Like, why? Like, is he actually this? shovel murderer after all i mean we don't know there's no explanation i mean i shovel my driveway i don't shovel the entire neighborhood's driveway like he does obviously but i, I could see maybe a blister happening but this is obviously something very different it's like are you not using a glove what's going on here but even, <laughs> even in my baseball days i never had a blister that bad that would just be whatever he had and the fact that no one cares about it no one no one investigates it and we're supposed to not feel that this something's up with this guy. It's clearly a scene where they're just saying, Oh yeah, this guy's clearly murdering people or whatever, but man, this guy's, he is shoveling quite, quite hard here. I know it's meant to be funny and it is, but why does Kevin care about the American dental association? Like I've never, that's never crossed my mind. Do they approve toothbrushes or disapprove of them? I, I guess. Um, but to ask these, random like store clerks this question about the dental association no wonder they can't figure it out i mean who would know that yeah and we'll see that again when he goes grocery shopping but they're really we just saw it in the scene where he's trying to be the man of the house they obviously played on the the humor of it of a kid acting as an adult and whatever and what he thinks an adult would ask and obviously be like, Oh yeah, is this approved by the American dental association? I, I mean, I don't even know if they approve toothbrushes as a general rule. I mean, I, maybe they do. I, I know in commercials, they'd say, Oh, four out of five doctors approve of this toothbrush. Although it's like, why does the one not approve? I always wondered that, but yeah, I have no idea. They're just, they're just making some fun with it and, and having a good time. Just like Kevin running away from the cop. It's just, it's comedic humor, family fun, etc. The Wet Bandits here, uh, they have a van that says OK Plumbing and Heating on the side, which I think is 
kind of a funny name for for this business because it's it's like it's not great, it's not good, it's okay though. We have mediocre workers, uh, so if you're looking for a job half done that's passable but not one that you'll be happy with, you know, give us a call. That's kind of the vibe I get from the okay plumbers. Yeah, instead of exceptional plumbers or something like that. They also say that they specialize and they love doing residential work. So that was kind of like kind of a, a nod to what they do around the neighborhood. It was also funny because they this was actually decently done product placement, the Dodge Ram. They do a very strong close-up on the Dodge as soon as it's about to hit Kevin, kind of like Dodge the car about to hit you. And of course, it's a Dodge Ram, so it's it's the car's ramming into Kevin, basically. The car's ramming into Kevin. So I thought that was kind of interesting product placement. It's, it's clear with the zoom-in on the Dodge, because why else would you do that, that they're trying to not only give product placement, but they're also trying to incorporate at least a little bit of a joke there. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good uh, find. I, I hadn't picked up on that, and it's right up there with some of the Pepsi product placement that we get. The rocking around the Christmas tree scene, pretty ingenious um, how he's able to pull it off. He's got all these rope strings attached to all these different figures and whatnot. Apparently, the McAllisters are just into collecting cardboard cutouts of celebrities i guess because there's a couple of them there's like a mannequin or something which again why do they have there's also the michael jordan and like it's a pretty fun scene but it makes me wonder like what are the McAllisters doing like why do they have all this stuff in their house yeah that was my observation as well because he, he didn't shop for it so it's obviously something that they're having I get the Michael Jordan cut out because that's probably something Buzz would have. But there are three mannequins. There, they have a, he has a poker scene set up, and then another one where she's going around on the train set. So three mannequins. I never even had one mannequin in my house, let alone three. I think maybe it highlights, gives some insight, perhaps into their vast fortune, or at least just that somebody's really in a fashion design. I mean, that's the only way I know that people use mannequins for it would be maybe wig fittings and and fashion design, something like that. So it could be hairstyle, fashion, maybe something like that. Maybe that's why they're in Chicago, a big city where they can do that. Obviously, that's about all I could gather from it. But yeah, I thought that was very odd for three mannequins just to be chilling in your basement. Must be related to the profession in some capacity. From here, we cut back to the family in the Paris hotel room, and they are watching some French TV that they clearly don't understand, and they are snacking the whole time. Kevin's dad is still making calls, trying to find out about Kevin, and Buzz says that he doesn't care about Kevin and that he could use time in the real world. Megan, on the other hand, is worried about Kevin. You're not at all worried that something might happen to him? No, for three reasons. A, I'm not that lucky. Two, we have smoke detectors. And D, we live in the most boring street in the United States of America, where nothing even remotely dangerous will ever happen. Period. Uh, of course, Buzz here is a genius, uh, and everything that he says will be totally accurate. We cut back to Chicago, and there is a pizza guy, the same one as before, coming back to the house. He knocks over the same statue again with his car when he arrives, and he sees a sign on the door that says to go to the back door. He goes around and knocks, and when he gets there, Kevin uses the Angels with Filthy Souls movie. He uses clips from it as he stops and starts the movie to basically 
scare the pizza kid. He uses this mobster film to freak him out. In the end, he ends up putting $12 out the door through this sort of like doggy door that is in the back door since he owes $11.80. And whenever the pizza kid picks up the $12 and he's like, man, this guy's a cheapskate. He only gave me a 20 cent tip. Kevin turns on the part of the movie where the mobster blows this guy away, just gunfire, super loud, very, very intense, and it scares the pizza guy as he runs back to his car and drives off as fast as he can. We go to the airport where Kevin's mom is attempting to bribe an old woman to get her seat on the plane. The old woman is driving a hard bargain, trying to get different jewelry like the mom's Rolex and trying to drive up the deal here. But her husband shows up and pulls her away. She's got her own earrings, a whole shoebox full of dangly ones. No, but I'm desperate. I'm begging you from a mother to a mother, please. Oh, Ed, please. Oh, all right. And so they eventually give in and allow Kevin's mom onto the plane. Back in the house, Kevin is sitting in his parents' bed and he's watching Johnny Carson some late night on TV. Kevin is looking at a picture of his family. I didn't mean it. If you come back, I'll never be a pain in the butt again. I promise. Good night. He then kisses the picture and sticks it underneath one of the pillows. The very next morning, uh, we see Kevin singing in front of the mirror. The song Dreaming of a White Christmas is playing. And we see, as Kevin is getting ready, the spider, the tarantula from before, crawling around past the toilet as he works his way across the bathroom. We then cut to the store, where Kevin is doing some grocery shopping. He heads to the checkout with his cart. And the clerk is sort of eyeing him strangely, wondering why he's there by himself. He starts unloading the cart. He has some microwave dinners in there. He asks the clerk if microwave dinners are any good. And then he says he has a coupon. And so he's paying for all of his stuff. It only comes to 1983. The clerk eventually asks, Are you here all by yourself? Ma'am, I'm eight years old. You think I'd be here alone? I don't think so. Where's your mom? My mom's in the car. Where's your father? He's at work. What about your brothers and your sisters? I'm an only child. Where do you live? Uh, I can't tell you that. Why not? Because you're a stranger. He comes up with answers for all these things, and he is able to get out of the grocery store without being chased by law enforcement this time. On the way home... His two bags that he's carrying have the bottoms fall out and all of his stuff hits the ground. Kevin is clearly dismayed. He must somehow get it all home because when we cut back to the house, we see that he has now moved on to another chore. Uh, He's downstairs doing laundry and working with the machines. The furnace starts going off again and it starts doing this scary thing where it's sort of calling Kevin's name. But Kevin just tells it to shut up. And when he does this, it goes back to being a normal furnace. It it no longer looks scary. Kevin is becoming the man of the house. I want to go through your narration chronologically. The first thing that jumps out with what you said 
is in that hotel room. This tree, it's white. It's a white tree with blue lights. So it's not even multicolored lights. And that looks like they have like green, either tinsel or garnish or ribbons or something like that. And I guess this, presumably they're going to a hotel room and this French room has already been set up. Maybe they specifically ordered this, but right off the bat, not getting good vibes here, having Christmas in France with this tree. It just gave me all the wrong vibes. Yeah, I don't like the tree. Tree's no good. I do like some of the shots of France that we see. One of the monuments that flashes past the screen is the Arc de Triomphe, which is for uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, This is actually a sort of copy of what the ancient Romans used to do. Whenever a great general had a victory, they would enjoy this sort of party, this, you know, citywide festival that was called a triumph. And it was meant to mark the great generals and their successes. So Napoleon here trying to hearken back to the Caesars of ancient Rome. So once again, we, we come back to Rome, it would seem. Fun fact, Napoleon Bonaparte's real name was Napoleone di Bonaparte. And he was from an island called Corsica, which was actually ethnically Italian, even though it was part of the French Empire at the time. Napoleon himself, really Italian rather than French, and then he Frenchified his name into Napoleon Bonaparte in order to make it seem more French. Ah, so maybe we would be getting a Napoleones for some for some pizza on a Friday night or something. Yeah, man, pretty cool. Sounds good to me. Pretty cool tidbit. See, I'm getting hungry now because not only am I thinking about that, I'm thinking about these these microwave dinners. Because honestly, this is what I do. If my family ever goes away on a trip or something and I'm by myself, I'll go to a grocery store. And that's pretty much what I'll do. I'm able to cook. I can cook. I have cooked, obviously, for myself. But I kind of am like a connoisseur where I'll try different frozen meals. Michelinas, Stouffer's, Hungry Man, Devour, go down the line. I've tried them all. And I kind of just experiment a little bit here and there. I got to say, what are your thoughts on, you know, the current state of frozen dinners? Do you still eat them? I know as a kid, like Michelina's fettuccine Alfredo was the best thing in the world to me. And I basically lived off frozen dinners. Now I go back and eat it. It's just so bland, man. And I just taste the salt so much because of the preservatives and everything. And it just seems like most of these frozen dinners, there are certain ones that I'll like, but by and large, they just seem overly salted and bland. And so I don't know if you, if you still partake in these or, or, you know, why do, why does everything taste better when you're a kid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really does. I've, I haven't had one in forever. Whenever I was a kid, occasionally my dad would have frozen dinners for dinner, but that like, that was almost never, he cooked pretty much all the time. But in the rare case that we did for whatever reason, I always remember there was sort of like one of the little parts of the dish was always like a brownie dessert or something like that. Um, I, I love that as a kid. I feel like now it's probably terrible, but I haven't had one in forever. The closest thing that I've had to, and it's not a frozen dinner in any way, but the closest thing I've had is like a Lunchables. Uh, I got like some Lunchables from Sam's Club like about a year ago. It was just like the cheese pizza one. And I started eating those for a while. Uh, But a legitimate like heated up in the microwave, microwave dinner. uh, No, it's been forever. And I would probably think the same. 
yeah, the Launchables vibe still exists, but Launchables itself, it's actually not that bad, to be honest. But I'm a big Launchables guy in terms of having the like Sharktugaru board. I, I, I can't get enough of meat, cheese, crackers, grapes, etc. Just conglomeration of that. It's my favorite snack tray. So I feel like the Lunchables spirits lived on. But yes, now I, I far prefer the live cooking. So you're going to have a big grocery bag haul like what Kevin had. And I have a memory of this too, where with my youngest kid, my daughter, which is a little baby, I basically decided I was going to go out on an adventure with her. And so I had her in one of these sling carriers and was going to do a grocery store trip. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. But like Kevin, I overpacked the bags and no joke. I mean, it was just down the sidewalk, boom, bags emptied everywhere. It was absolute devastation. But the problem is I was halfway between my home and the grocery store. So I literally just went home, <laughs> took her <laughs> and then drove back to get the groceries. <laughs> but I was like, man, this no is one worth- stole the groceries. They were still there. I, you know, I had to tuck them away a little bit, but yeah, it was just like, oh my gosh, that was- here I was thinking I was being this great dad. I was texting my wife and she was like, oh, that's so cute. Like you're going out with your sling. I don't even know if I told her that it happened. Cause I was like, I don't want her thinking I'm a, I'm a ter- you know, terrible father dropping groceries in the middle of the road and looking like a degenerate. But I, I was <laughs> in that moment. It was not, not my brightest idea, but I really thought that'd be a good uh, bonding moment with me and my daughter and you know she does listen to the podcast and now she has a little bit of an insight into a a story that i had shared with her that she obviously would not be cognizant of well i mean it should have worked it's not your fault that the bags failed i mean I, i don't think i've ever had that happen shockingly I also have this instinct, and maybe it's just the male instinct in general, where I have to carry as much as humanly possible at all Same. at all times. So it's like one hundred percent. My fingers are like falling off with their circulation, and I'm but I'm carrying it, and I'm overstuffing every bag because it's like I gotta make this trip. And <laughs> oh, you've got to do it in one trip. Like whenever I get home with my groceries, I have to bring them all in in one trip. Um, thankfully, now I use reusable bags, and there are like way more durable because they're actual bags so if i stuff them full not a problem in fact whenever i go to the grocery if they do have anyone who's bagging i'll try to go into the line that does not have one so that i can do it myself because i just like to pile everything in to the reusable bags as much as humanly possible for the smallest number of bags as, as you can get, and then I'll carry them all in in one go. Back outside of the house, we have our favorite bandits here, the Wet Bandits. And they are confused about what's happening with the McAllister house. Um, they're not really sure if anyone's home or not, or, or what the situation is. Harry tells Marv to go and check it out. And when Marv approaches the house, Kevin is washing dishes in the kitchen but he notices Marv trying to open the door. Marv kicks his foot into the doggy door and his shoe falls off inside of the house. He then bends down and sort of crawls partway through the door in order to retrieve it. But this is where Kevin puts on the Angels movie again that he had used a couple of times now. Uh, We've seen in in the movie so far. And the sound of the gunfire and everything terrifies Marv as he runs back out from the house. Kevin then also goes to the next level here. He gets some firecrackers and lights them on fire inside of a pot so that it increases the sound of the gunfire, making it sound even more terrifying as Marv just rushes back to the van. 
happened? I don't know who's in there, but somebody just got blown away. Huh? Somebody beat us to the job. They're in there. Two of them. There was arguing. One of them blew the other one away. Who? I don't know. I thought I recognized one of their voices. And I know I heard that name Snakes before. Snakes? Snakes, snakes. I don't know no snakes. Snakes. Let's get out of here. Harry thinks that if they see the guy who did the shooting, that they could use the information if they ever get caught to cut a deal with the police. So they decide to continue waiting outside of the house to see who this shooter actually was. We then head back to the airport. Uh, We see that the plane is landing and that the mom is looking for another airline so that she can continue to get closer to home. She's not in the right city yet. She's just sort of inching her way closer. Interestingly enough, the place that she's in happens to be Scranton, which is located in the great state of Pennsylvania, and I will talk more about that in a second. But before we get into any talk about Scranton, the situation is resolved whenever Kevin's mom is overheard by a man who can offer her a ride home. He's wearing a very, very yellow jacket with a mug of beer on the front, And the name that is written on the jacket is Gus Polinski. He is the polka king of the Midwest, we are told. She doesn't recognize him. He tries to mention the names of some of his hit songs going back into the early 70s. He said they're kind of a big deal because they sold about 623 copies of their hits. Very big at Sheboygan. They loved it, you know. I'm sorry, did you say you could help me? A- anyway, I'm, I'm rambling on here. Our flight was canceled, so we gotta drive. So uh, if you have to get to Chicago, we'll, we'll gladly drive you. It's on the way to Milwaukee. We then go back to the Wet Bandits again. They see Kevin outside in the yard cutting down a part of a tree that he drags into the house to use as a Christmas tree. And they realize what is going on. Kevin is home alone. Back inside the house, Kevin decorates the tree. We see Harry peering in through the window. Uh, Kevin sees him in a reflection off of a Christmas tree bulb that he is looking at. And he goes off calling to his dad, asking him to help with the tree. He thinks this will trick Harry into thinking that his dad is home, but Harry sees right through it. Harry wants to come back that evening. You gotta be kidding. You want to come back tonight? Uh-huh. Even with the kid here? Uh-huh. I don't think that's a good idea, Harry. Hey, look, that house is the only reason we started working this block in the first place. Ever since I laid eyes on that house, I wanted it. Kevin overhears the whole conversation, and so he knows that the showdown with the Wet Bandits is happening this evening. Back in the van, the mom is being treated to Christmas polka songs uh, by Gus and his crew that he is with. She seems pretty annoyed. Just sort of a funny little scene here. And then we cut back to the house at night as things are about to start to go down. Ah, the polka king here. Um, (laughs) Did a little bit of cartography here for this trip. It's actually pretty much lines up. So like due to Google's maps here from Scranton, PA to Milwaukee, where they go, it kind of goes right past Chicago. It's like literally on the way. Uh, They're both along kind of like the south, southwest coast of Lake Michigan. And the map technically takes you through a a town, Naperville, which I've been to, uh, but it's, you know, a close suburb of Chicago. Uh, It's a two hour trip then from Chicago to Milwaukee. So the the entire trip's roughly about like 12 hours. So that's kind of what we're looking at here. 
What were your thoughts on this game plan to make this trip? I mean, a 12-hour trip's a very long time. And alternatively, you might be able to, to sit on a standby basis and, and still score there. It just seems like she's so distraught. She's willing to take any kind of hope. Yeah, she has tunnel vision here. I mean, you know, she just wants to get back. And it, she doesn't know if she'll get a plane or not. So, yeah, the 12-hour van ride, I mean, if it's her goal to get back as soon as possible, it could be her best bet, uh, but she's going to sacrifice having to sit with Gus and his polka pals the entire way back in the back of this van. It does not look like a comfortable ride for 12 hours. Um, I cannot say that I'm jealous for her in this moment. Now, one thing that I do love is that she's in Scranton, which, of course, is the home of the American version of the show The Office, uh, as well as a somewhat, you know, mid-sized city here in Pennsylvania, wrong side of the state. But I will say that uh, probably in order to get home, she'll have to drive through the Pittsburgh area. If this was me, I mean, I'd just stop and get some Permanis sandwiches and take it easy. I mean... To, you know, soak in the sights of the city, but I guess she'd rather get home to her home alone son. Yeah, I mean the the Pittsburgher, obviously one of my personal favorites. There, always get it whenever I'm in in town. Got to do it, man. Permanis is awesome. They actually even had a location in Florida, which is kind of weird. It is very weird. Yeah. <laughs> they, they've been branching local. out a little <laughs> bit, but I, I don't know why. I feel like it's probably because so many people from. Pennsylvania, like retire to Florida because they don't want to be in a cold area anymore. So maybe that's why it's there. Maybe there's a little like Yinzer community down there in Florida. I'm not sure. Um, if you don't know what Permanis is, by the way, it is a local, you know, it started in Pittsburgh, local sandwich shop chain. It has expanded a little bit to some nearby areas. Uh, like there's a location in West Virginia nearby, but for the most part, it's a southwestern Pennsylvania thing. And the sort of gimmick of it is that you get a sandwich with meat and cheese and tomato, typical stuff. But they also put on top of it coleslaw and fries before they put the top piece of bread on. So it's basically an entire meal like in the sandwich itself. No fries on the side, no coleslaw on the side. It's all right there on top of the sandwich. And it's unbelievable. Um, so I eat there pretty frequently, like probably a couple times a month. So I would definitely uh, recommend anyone who's in the area or if you're lucky enough to be at that one random one in Florida that, that exists down there. And there's probably some rich guy that just was like, you know what? I go to Florida. Let's just build one. Like, let's yeah. just build a Permanis because we want it while we're snowboarding or whatever. I totally believe that. And I got to say, they don't mess around. I think they really want you to drink beer because I was – funny story. I was in college getting Permani Brothers, and for whatever reason, I ordered a chocolate milk. I like chocolate milk. I usually get that at Eaton Park, also another local favorite for Pittsburghers. And I would get a chocolate milk. They gave me the chocolate milk in front of everybody, no joke, in the kids' carton, like the kids' plastic thing, and they just put a straw in it. Like they didn't put it in a cup. <laughs> so it's like, it's like they were just – like, never seen that before. Usually they put it in a, one of the plastic cups and it's just like milk yeah, mixed yeah. with Hershey's. Instead, they just gave me the kids thing with like a maze on the back of it or whatever. And I'm like, oh, that's just great. And the straw was four times the size of the little bit of jug they gave me. So I thought that was kind of funny. Amazing. But... No, I, I, <laughs> I, I love it. And uh, I will say that I did look up the locations. Um, so basically, 
they're mainly in, around Pittsburgh. There's some in, in nearby parts of West Virginia, like Morgantown or Wheeling. Um, there do appear to be a few that are on the edge of the border uh, across into Ohio a little bit, like um, toward like Warren, Ohio, it looks like. And then um, there's a little bit on the eastern side of the state. And then that one that... <laughs> That looks like it's sort of like close to the Fort Lauderdale, uh, Miami type area down in Florida. So there you go. Yeah. And that's the one that I went to because my tennis team, we, our coach would basically send us down there to play tennis with the people in the South. And by the way, we got crushed. I mean, I don't think I won a single game, let alone a set against these guys. It was actually my claim to fame. One time I was the only one to actually ever win a whole match in tennis down there. Cause I was the lower tier type of player. I was like our sixth starter. And I went up against their sixth starter and somehow the, the stars aligned, but I was the only one from our school to actually ever win a full match there. So I was kind of a hero for a period of time. <laughs> but, Epic. Well, but yeah, I, was, I wonder about is because in, in all the restaurants another sort of like uh, specialty of the restaurant is how they're decorated because they have like Pittsburgh sports memorabilia and murals all around the entire uh, restaurant. So I'm curious if the ones that are in Ohio still have all the Pittsburgh stuff in them or not Um, in West Virginia, they do, but that's not unusual because West Virginia does not have a ton of their own teams other than like college. So they tend to cheer for like Pittsburgh teams, but in Ohio, I don't know. I mean, how that would go down. That must be a little bit touchy. Ah, I hope not. I hope not. The, the one in Florida wasn't like that. It was basically it was it was kind of built into a wall type of thing, kind of like a a sandwich, like a, a pop up sandwich stand type deal. It wasn't really like a huge sit down place. So uh, it was more of like a I don't want to say a stand because it was built into a structure or whatever, but it very much wasn't the Yinzer type stuff that they, they yeah they had some Pittsburgh stuff, but not anything like what you see now. And if that comes into Ohio. You know, well, it's already in Ohio. I mean, we, we just we just don't know uh, how the stores are decorated. No, you've so started. No, you've started to conquer, but you have yet to put the the pennants and whatnot. Hopefully, in those locations, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you have. Maybe we'll you see. have. I'm Browns, we're not successful. We're not successful enough to uh, to fight against that. I don't think you probably would have a stronger uh, Steelers <laughs> backing over there than than Browns fans. Well, I, now I'm curious. I might have to find out someday. But yeah, uh, one other thing from this section here is that the Wet Bandits finally figure out Kevin's deception. Now this is where things are going to get real. Just something I need to address, because let's just get this out of the way. Why do you think Kevin elects to fight the Wet Bandits mano a mano rather than, like get help. <laughs> like, why does he, knowing full well that they're coming that evening, why does he do nothing to enlist help from anybody? He doesn't go to the police. He doesn't even go to the old man later on in the church. He doesn't tell him what's going on. Doesn't maybe tell like a priest in the church what's going on. He does nothing. He just decides that he's going to fight these guys on his own. Why do you think, is there an explanation for that other than just that it needs to happen for the movie to live up to its promise? Like, is there an actual, like, logical explanation for it? Uh, yeah, I would default to it's just convenient, you know, kind of like Kevin being forgotten in the first place, but maybe even a worse a script issue. The one thing I, I can come up with is the police had already been to the house to kind of check up on him. And so they had gone, knocked, no one was there, whatever. They moved on. Any call 
to 911 may have led to them doing the, a similar thing where they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's just a prank again. We're going to ignore it. We're not taking it seriously. But like you said, yeah, old man at the church, there's a whole group of people in there. You could do that. There's also the metaphorical argument of Kevin being the man of the house. You can you can go into that about him not making the best decision, maybe not realizing the danger that he was in, thinking that he can be the man of the house and he's going to stand up to the bullies, just like his family and whatever. And that's the other thing I could come up with is just Kevin kind of just blinded by his desire to kind of stand up for himself against bullies. He probably sees the wet bandit is his family members teasing him and whatnot, as opposed to like actual mortal danger. Yeah. As far as I see it, it's just his choice. I think it's just what he wants to do. He thinks he can fight them and he has all these plans. And again, yeah, he has this sort of unrealistic view of of a child of thinking that he can take on these two adult men uh, and that he can beat them. The other choice he's making is to choose to love his family. And they're like making it really sentimental where he's looking at pictures. He's setting up the Christmas tree. Great tree, by the way. Clutch fine there that he was able to find that. But and unfortunately, he wasn't buying this, this touching moment of Kevin, like missing his family, wanting him back. I understand they want to set that up, but they went so hard on how much Kevin hates them. And then they just give us this one little scene of like, oh, Kevin has regrets and he misses them because he's a little bit scared. Still wasn't connecting all that well for me. Did that work for you? Did you feel Kevin was like longing for his family to come back after this scene? I can believe it because kids do that sort of thing where they throw the I hate you tantrum and everything. And then, you know, they really don't mean it. I feel like in this case, too, because he's been abandoned all of a sudden and he still believes that he made them disappear. I think he feels regret for having done that. And yeah, I could see it. Holidays in particular, you know, people are more emotional. Um, I feel like having to do the traditions of like putting up the tree by himself. Yeah, I think it it could make him regretful. And it was a pretty good find. Uh, although he had to cut the actual tree like in half. He cuts like half of it off and drags it into the house because he can't take the whole thing. But worked out pretty well. I mean, I'll give him credit. And let's see if you can get some extra credit. I'm going to put you on the spot here with a little bit of a quiz because I think it will elucidate something here. So you're watching a mafia movie kind of like Marv out there in the back and you hear the name Sonny. Does that... Do you have any word association with that? Oh, come on. Godfather part one, no doubt. Okay. I mean, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's kind Sonny of what Corleone, I was thinking. man. He's, yes, he's, yes. uh, the, the should have been the head of the family, if not for, uh, some events that unfold, let's say. So, yeah, that's, as so I was thinking about that with snakes and Marv about, you know, why, why, cause that would have immediately revealed that this obviously was the movie angels and demons. Obviously this movie is not akin to Godfather. So maybe it's kind of a little bit of a lesser known movie. So I was kind of thinking about that, about the word association, not, you know, the what man, it's not knowing what this reference was, not knowing the scene seemed a little bit weird to me. Um, and it would have definitely kind of spoiled Kevin's plan, but maybe it was more on the lower end. But it seems like Marv like kind of knew what it was. So it's just an interesting observation. And I wondered, you know, I, I would think that if there was a movie like a mafia movie, we'd probably know the voices even, let alone the having an actual name. I feel like we would we would have known right away what they were talking about. Well, since we know that they made this movie up for the movie, we don't know in this world of Home Alone how big this movie is. I mean, what was it? A blockbuster hit? Would people know about it? Maybe it went direct to video. Hard to say. So, I mean, I'm going to give them some grace not knowing. Uh, Maybe it's one of those things where, like, whenever you do a job, 
you don't necessarily want to think about it on your off time. So like, you know, the wet bandits are like mob adjacent because they're bandits. So maybe they don't like watching uh, mob movies in their free time. Maybe they watch like romantic comedies, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, the only thing that made me ask the question is that Marv was like snakes, like snakes. Like I kind of, it seems like he kind of was familiar with the name, but maybe he just heard that in passing or maybe, you know, people were stereotyping people like him using calling him snakes or whatever. And and he's like, don't don't associate me with a mob, mobster like that. How dare you? Maybe he's thinking of like Solid Snake <laughs> from Metal Gear. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's, there are other options here. So Kevin decides to go see Santa Claus. Uh, he ends up at this sort of little house that's been put up. Uh, which is meant for people to go in and see Santa Claus. But it's dark, it's nighttime, and we see an elf outside locking up the house. The Santa, who is of course not the real Santa, uh, is over by his car. And Kevin goes over to see him, and he says, Listen, I know you're not the real Santa, but you must know the real Santa. I'm old enough to know how it works, but I also know that you work for him. I'd like you to give him a message. Shoot. I'm Kevin McAllister, 671 Lincoln Boulevard. Do you need the phone number? Nah, that's right. Okay, this is extremely important. Would you please tell him that instead of presents this year, I just want my family back. Kevin then continues walking. Uh, he heads toward his house. We see a beautiful scene with snow everywhere and lights reflecting from all the trees and houses and everything. He walks past a particularly happy family's house. We see them inside doing Christmas-type stuff together, and he clearly seems like he's a little bit sad. Kevin continues on. He goes past a church, and he hears a choir singing. And they're performing the song, Oh Holy Night. He goes in and sits down, and pretty soon we see the terrifying man from the urban legend in the neighborhood. So this man that Kevin has been terrified of, the man with a shovel that his brother said was a killer, he walks into this church and wants to sit down next to Kevin, and Kevin allows him to. When they sit together, they start actually talking a little bit. The old man tells Kevin that his granddaughter is in the choir, and that he doesn't have to be afraid of him because the rumors are not true. Kevin says he's been a real pain lately toward his family, and he hasn't been very good this year. He says he really likes his family, though, even though he doesn't say it that often. The old man tells him that family is complicated, but deep down you always love them. In fact, he came here to see his granddaughter because he can't be there later on when his son comes. The two of them had an argument, and they both have not gotten over it. And they have not spoken since. If you miss him, why don't you call him? I'm afraid if I call him, he won't talk to me. How do you know? I don't know. I'm just afraid he won't. No offense, but aren't you a little old to be afraid? You can be a little old for a lot of things. You're never too old to be afraid. And Kevin suggests that he should call his son and try to make up with him. They shake hands and Kevin leaves the church. We start to hear a bell tolling from the church as Kevin runs home. And we get epic music starting to play as Kevin prepares to do battle against the wet bandits. He goes home here and unfurls his plans for booby traps and starts laying them out throughout the house. 
and we get a montage of the entire scene, which I am a big fan of. As the montage ends, the wet bandits drive up to the house. We see Kevin at the dinner table. He is crossing himself and saying a prayer over his mac and cheese and milk that he is preparing to eat. Bless his highly nutritious microwaveable macaroni and cheese dinner and the people who sold it on sale. Amen. But the clock chimes nine, and he has to go and prepare. This is it. Don't get scared now. He gets the BB gun ready. And as the wet bandits start knocking on the door to try to get him to open up, he puts the gun through the doggy door and shoots Harry right in the balls. Marv then gets a shot to the head when he tries to poke his head through the door, and the festivities have kicked off here. We get a big litany of all sorts of different traps. There are icy steps that Harry falls down, Marv also falling on the basement steps, Harry ends up grabbing onto a railing to try to get himself up the steps, but continues to fall. Marv does manage to get into the basement after prying the door open, but when he pulls down what appears to be a light switch, an iron falls down and smashes him in the head. Harry continues struggling to get to the front door, and when he does, he grabs a super red-hot knob, which burns his hand horribly. He ends up plunging his hand into the snow, and it smokes because of how hot it was. Marv is trying to go up the basement steps to get into the first level of the house, and his shoes come off in the tar that Kevin had put on the stairs. He then steps on a massive nail that Kevin had sticking up from one of the steps and falls the whole way down back to the bottom of the stairs. When Harry finally gets into the kitchen, a blowtorch goes off and incinerates the hair off the top of his head and his cap, and he is once again horribly burned here. Marv has now abandoned the basement. He walks around to the front of the house and goes outside again, just as Harry bursts through the door on fire. The two of them decide to try a different way in, Harry walks back through the door, but he gets hit with feathers blown from a fan, and Marv, coming in through a window, tears his feet up on a bunch of Christmas ornaments that crack and break when he steps on them. I'm gonna kill that kid! The bandits finally unite together, and now they see Kevin at the top of the stairs, but then they slip on a bunch of micro-machines and hit the ground. Kevin throws down paint cans attached to strings that hit them in the face, and Harry's gold tooth pops out. Kevin finally calls the police at this point. He finally goes up into one of the bedrooms and calls the police. Why did he wait this long? We've already discussed this, but he finally makes the call. The wet bandits are struggling to get up the stairs. When they finally do, Harry hits a trip wire and, and goes down. Marv jumps over him to try to grab Kevin, but Kevin takes the spider that had escaped from his brother's room and puts it on Marv's face. He freaks out, giving Kevin a chance to escape into the attic. Kevin ziplines across to his treehouse, and we cut back to Marv trying to kill the spider, which has somehow managed to get onto Harry. He has a crowbar ready, and he starts smashing Harry with the crowbar in an attempt to kill the spider, which misses every time. The Wet Bandits finally get their act together, 
and they start climbing across to the treehouse using the rope that connected the zip line to the house. But Kevin cuts the line, sending them both slamming into the side of the house, and they fall to the ground. Kevin jumps down from the treehouse, and he heads down the street to a different house. When he goes inside, the basement is flooded, and this must be one of the previous houses that the Wet Bandits had hit earlier in the film. He runs up from the basement into the main part of the house, only to see the Wet Bandits already there, and they grab him and hang him on a hook on the back of the door. What are you going to do to him, Harry? I'll do exactly what he did to us. I'm going to burn his head with a blowtorch. And smash his face with an iron. I'd slap him right in the face with a paint can, maybe. Or shove a nail through his foot. First thing I'm going to do is bite off every one of these little fingers, one at a time. Just as they are about to get revenge on Kevin, our man with the shovel shows up again and smashes both of the wet bandits in the face and takes Kevin down, rescuing him. We then cut to the outside where we hear police sirens and the police are taking the wet bandits away. They are getting arrested, and as they are put into the back of the car, we see Harry looking at Kevin with hatred as Kevin waves at him from the window. Kevin leaves out some milk and cookies for Santa, and he heads to bed. The wet bandits have been defeated. The old man here uh, with a little bit of redemption. I guess we can start talking about that scene in the church. Beautiful church, beautiful choir, Oh Holy Night. One of my favorite Christmas songs. I always listen to Josh Groban's Christmas album. Probably my favorite song on the track. Highly recommend it. What were your thoughts on the old man here? I mean, what are your thoughts on his position, his advice, etc.? So the old man, I honestly am a pretty big fan of. I think that he seems like a pretty good guy that for whatever reason, these horrible rumors have been spread about him. And we don't really know where the rumors came from. Like, what exactly was it that prompted all of this? You know, he's become an urban legend in the community. And we don't really know if there was ever any iota of remote, even minuscule amount of truth surrounding this. It sounds like it was all just some kind of mean story that got out of control and took on a life of its own. And so I do feel bad for him because it seems like he's been ostracized in that regard, and then he also has this problem with his son. We don't know what the argument was. We never find out. All we know is that he is not able to see his granddaughter when his son is around because they don't get along. Um, He's here at the church early uh, so he can catch a glimpse of her performing. To me, it's just a sad situation that a family could come to that where there would be members of the family as close as a father and son that like just wouldn't want to be around each other and that they would keep the granddaughter away to an extent because of that. Uh, It just seems like really depressing. So the only thing is we don't know what he did, right? So did the old man do something terrible that like this is warranted to an extent? I mean, we don't know that to me, it sounds like they had a petty argument of some kind that spiraled out of control. And being that this is, you know, a family Christmas movie type of deal. I don't think that this was probably a big problem. I think it was probably the thing where people grow apart. They have an argument. They just don't want to say they're sorry, don't want to make up for it. And they kind of let that fester. And so as time goes on, it becomes more and more difficult. 
for anyone to approach the situation and to be the first one to say that they're sorry or to sort of let it go. And taking that interpretation, I feel like the old man is kind of a sad character here. Without a doubt, sad character. And it's it's kind of hard for me in this scene because he's the one trying to give advice to Kevin with his family and everything. But it's like you said, I think the real sadness is obviously with him because he's the old man. I mean, he's not the little kid. And what we do know from the argument and what bothered me the most is that he said he told the son he didn't want to see him anymore. He didn't care to see him anymore. So he's the one that initiated that whatever fight they were having, he's the one that said, okay, then I don't want to see you again. And so he was the one who started it. So I felt like the blame was predominantly on him. I mean, if if you're the dad, you shouldn't be saying stuff like that to get exiled from the family. And I got to say, my daughter just joined choir. My wife's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Good luck trying to sneak in a visit here. If that's your situation. I mean, the gall of this guy to kind of like sneak in to see his granddaughter or whatever. I mean, I almost think maybe that the son's in the back kind of seeing him there and just letting him have his moment type of deal. But yeah, I, I put the blame squarely on the grandfather here, initiating the exile and then not making up with it. And Kevin is dropping the truth bombs here. You know, he, he's the one that's supposed to be the spoiled little brat, but he's like, yeah, make up with your family. Why are you giving me advice? Yeah, I mean, there is a dichotomy between the two of them where it's sort of, it's flipped on its head from how it would normally be uh, regarding advice. So yeah, I mean, I... Not knowing the nature of the dispute, I mean, it's a little bit of a gray area, but you're right that he shouldn't have initiated the separation. Um, It is unfortunate, though, that it leads to him also not being able to see the granddaughter. From here, we do get the probably my favorite part of like the music, at least, is this Carol the Bells cover that they kind of do to montage into the, the setting of the traps and whatever. Absolutely beautiful. Carol the Bells, also one of my favorites. Lindsey Sterling did a cover of it. And my son, literally, it's one of his favorite songs. He actually filmed himself like pretending to sing and do the violin and whatever to the actual song. So I highly encourage anyone to watch that. Very, very good. Lindsey Sterling is fantastic. I echo the recommendation. Uh, Her Skyrim cover uh, is very good as well. Looking at the Wet Bandits here, it was pretty striking to me that knowing now that the kid is in the house without a doubt, they're still going in this house. That was kind of troubling to me because what's your game plan here? I mean, what's your game plan here? You're going to, you're going to leave an eyewitness. I mean, are they going to kidnap him or are they going to take him out? You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand what their motivations are. I mean, they're not, in my opinion, just thieves at that point, they have to have an end game here for Kevin. And so that was kind of a macabre way of seeing it, but I really was wondering why are they going in this house? This is no longer a case of, Oh, you know, mistaken X, Y, or Z. It's like, they know he's there and they don't care. The way it's presented, Harry just desperately wants this score. Like, he can't do without it. He says it's the whole reason they started casing the neighborhood in the first place. And I think he's just sort of blinded by greed here. He thinks they can go in, take whatever they want, and there won't be any repercussions to it. Now, by the time they get beaten to heck by Kevin's traps, though it's indisputable that they want to get revenge and that they're going to they're talking about breaking his fingers and stuff. I mean, it gets pretty brutal. So uh, the wet bandits are a lot more than just bandits. They're a lot more than just thieves. I mean, they're definitely not fathers because this is seeing some of these traps. It's like walking around my own house, like with baby gates, it's just kind of <laughs> stepping on toys, Legos, different action figures, and 
who knows what else I'll step on. I'm constantly in pain walking around my own house. <laughs> they had no, no, no field of vision here for any of these traps. And some of them, man, pretty brutal. You got to wonder. The nail, the nail always got me, dude. Like when I would watch this as a kid, that I'd have to look away when he stepped on the nail because it's just so huge. And then it's just, oh, just even thinking about it, it makes me queasy. Well, I just watched a horror movie where that happened and the nail actually went through. And I was like, that's what to me should have. It seems like that's what I think they obviously toned it down because of of PG nature of it. But it's a good thing he was very cautious on that stair because otherwise that thing's going straight through. And oof, that's that's brutal. Um, Who knows? He He was obviously very dizzy from getting slammed in the head with an iron. I think reading up on this, that's probably the one that's most likely to kill one of them was the actual iron. Cause you, you'd like break your skull or whatever, fracture your skull. I think you're Cause, right. Cause I think a doctor actually went through all these different injuries to see what it would be. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's probably the one that w- would have done him in. Um, well, torch, obviously not good, but that's burns as opposed to, you know, having your, your head smashed, but some pretty brutal traps here for sure. Yeah, pretty, pretty brutal. A lot of fun though. I'm not going to lie. I've always enjoyed the sequence a lot. It's, it's really what you're watching the movie for when you're a kid. This is what you want to see is, is this last sequence of going through all the traps. I think, I mean, I feel like everybody our age fantasized about this sort of situation after watching the movie, like imagining like setting up your own traps and, and, and what that would be like. Uh, so they even had some pretty fun video games um, on Sega Genesis. I think there was a Super Nintendo version. I still have my copy from back in the day downstairs of the Genesis one where you're basically having to defend different houses against the bandits and set up traps and stuff. So it lets you sort of, to an extent, kind of live that fantasy and... I would recommend, I mean, it's not like a game that's going to change your life, but if you want to be able to set up and hit the bandits with traps and things, it's it's a fun game. It's it's worth a try. It kind of reminds me of one of my favorite Nintendo games, Spy vs. Spy. You ever play that one? Oh, yeah. You're, you're kind of setting traps for the, the enemy. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. It, yeah, it's a similar idea. It's a similar idea in many ways. I think the way that the Home Alone game works, if I remember right, is that you have to defend like a certain number of houses within a certain time frame. There's maybe like four or five houses on the block that you go between and the bandits like take damage whenever you knock them down or whatever. And you have to last until the police arrive essentially. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun and you can mix together because you, you find different bits and pieces of ingredients like glue or whatever, and like you can combine them to make different things. So it's actually like the game is like the movie. The game yeah. is like the movie. That's yeah, it's sweet. actually it's a rare film adaptation <laughs> that actually is not trash. Like, you know, it, like whenever uh, we, you know, we were going to talk about the angry video game nerd at some point, just to mention him a little bit here. A lot of the worst games that this man reviews, because his whole idea is reviewing terrible games, most of them are movie tie-in games. They are games where it was a cash grab, try to tie in with some success of a movie. The Home Alone game is actually a fun game. Yeah, it's easy, obviously, with the cash grabs just to take the name and then have a bunch of unrelated things that have nothing to do with the movie. But you got your money, selling the, the title, and that's all that matters. And... Traps, obviously, like you said, the you know it's probably led to Saw. To be honest with you, that, <laughs> it was such a such a focal point here for the movie. 
Joe Pesci. Well, I mean, how many people have described Saw as like you know <laughs> Fatal Home Alone? I mean, that's pretty much that's pretty much what it is. <laughs> but yeah, the whole concept of traps and everything, pretty cool. Joe Pesci's physical humor is some of the best stuff here. Just how he speaks, how he acts, incredible things. And yeah, so, some of the traps get a little bit macabre, as we discussed. It's, you know, I think of it as being cartoonish more than anything, uh, because the way that they take damage from the traps and the way that they react, especially Joe Pesci, makes it like you're kind of watching a real life Looney Tunes is the way that I sort of envision this whole thing rather than seeing it as a more realistic type of deal. So like when Marv gets hit with the iron and he has the imprint on his head, it's really meant as like a comedic effect more than anything. I agree with you. I actually messed up with the transition, but you had a really (laughs) good point from that. So (laughs) I was saying that what I intended to say was that while that was very comical in nature, uh, with the with the farcical traps and whatever, some of the stuff in it is macabre, such as this macaroni and cheese dinner scene where the mac and cheese does not get touched. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of the prayer here, but here he is with this nice, delicious dish of mac and cheese doesn't get touched. He's approaching it with a fork and a knife, which is odd. Um, and then, then obviously the wet bandits come and kind of ruin everything. So I wanted to kind of segment this to ask your opinions. Are you a powder guy or are you a, a sauce man when it comes to your mac and cheese? And do you eat with a fork and a knife? First, I need to say, I have this pet peeve in movies and in TV shows. Whenever people get food, they never eat the food. Like, I understand from a filming point of view that you don't want to deal with continuity and with the actor having to eat so much of this food. But the idea, like, people will get given food by people or they'll go to a restaurant Like, how many times did the character just get up and leave having not eaten the food? How unrealistic is that? I mean, who does that? So that just by itself bothers me. Let me stop stop you there for a second. So your issue is with whether or not they eat. Is it about the actual actor eating or in terms of the movie? So I was immediately thinking of Uncle Rico here from the point Dynamite, but he's technically eating it on stage, but the actor himself doesn't eat. Is your issue with... Okay. But the characters should eat is what I'm saying. Like it annoys me that like people go into a restaurant, order food, they have like two bites of it and then they leave or they're like in the kitchen and their mom puts like a breakfast on the table and they eat like a half of an egg and then they're like, okay, I'm going to leave. Like nobody does that. Just like time lapse it so that like whenever you cut up and down, it like it looks like some time has passed and they've like some of the food's gone like do something it just drives me crazy and in movies that's some of my favorite foley artistry is with the silverware as you're eating and maybe having like a conversation or whatever like you can really have good conversations blending around somebody eat i know it sounds weird but it's very nostalgic for me to have the the family meal or whatever while things are going on i'm immediately drawn to like christmas vacation with that scene alone which is like the utensils and everything and the talking you can do a really good job with it so just show a little bit i understand maybe not eating and talking but just get a little bit creative here yeah i mean part of it's probably just my italian grandma like just really really getting the idea in my head that you got to finish your plate you know that might be a part of it but it just it bothers me because it's unrealistic nobody leaves food on the table like that just doesn't happen now as far as the type of mac and cheese i do not have a strong opinion about this. I 
don't really eat mac and cheese that much. Um, now, oddly enough, my wife just made some. She has a vegan uh, mac and cheese. It's a bunny mac. We refer to it. I think it's from Annie's, I want to say, that company that makes all that sort of healthier type food. And it's pretty good. I mean, I'll get a mac and cheese as a side sometimes. Like if I'm at Noodles and Company, they have a mac and cheese side. I'll get that sometimes. I don't make mac and cheese in the house on my own, like pretty much ever. So I I mean, I could go either way, but I think you've got an opinion. So I'm going to let you take it away. Well, I mean, I'm a mac and cheese connoisseur. Um, Powder to me is probably the least form of it just because it tends to get clumpy. But if you use the proper butter and milk to complement it, it can be all right. But there's a fine line between clumpy and watery, and it's really hard to kind of hit that right. And you get the chunks of butter. So I just, to me, it's just, it's inferior. I've warmed up to it because it's my wife's favorite. It's what my kids love too. It bothers me that they didn't get that from me. It's kind of like the crunchy versus creamy issue, but it is what it is. I'll just move on. I'm a huge sauce guy. I grew up on Velveeta, maybe throwing some chili there. Big sauce guy. Velveeta though, I've kind of moved on from Velveeta. You had mentioned Annie's. Yeah. Annie's is probably the best sauce that I'll have. And I even like their like Vermont cheddar type stuff. It's very good. The best type, I would say above even that maybe is like a Stouffer's Frozen. When you start going into that realm, like Stouffer's Frozen is amazing for me. You can throw that thing, in, huge thing in the oven. Their lasagna is good as well. Penultimate is obviously baked in the oven. And you even see fancy like steakhouses offering it. Like I don't hesitate. My father-in-law took me to St. Elmo's in Indianapolis and I got mac and cheese as like an appetizer. I think his head, like... I think it wanted to explode. It was like, I think it was a lobster back, but his head like blew up because he's like, he's <laughs> going to get stuffed on mac and cheese when he's going to get this St. Elmo steak. Well, here's the thing though. There is no point in criticizing people's food choices as far as if they're at a restaurant because let them get what they want and you can eat mac and cheese and a steak. I mean, let's be realistic here. It's not like you're going to run out of room for the steak. You know what I mean? So I'm all for ordering mac and cheese at a restaurant. Like I said, I'll get it as a side sometimes myself. Um, I think that if I had to choose, I'd probably come down on the sauce side of things because the Annie's is a sauce and I did like that quite a lot. Uh, So that's probably where I would take it uh, was, would be toward the sauce. Cause to me, it seems like the point of the powder is more like convenience than anything. I feel like the sauce is probably like a better quality type of type of cheese, you know, than you would get with most powders. That's just my feeling on it. But yeah, it's not really a big thing for me. So I'll default to your judgment about the sauce. Yeah. See, I don't know. For me, I thought, I find it hard to believe it's even more convenient just because it's such a, it's so hard. You have to measure the butter. You have to measure the milk and stir it where you, again, you're not having the clumps and you're not having too much butter isolated or too much butter in a certain concentrated area. I just think it's, it's just how they used to do it. So it's more like tradition. I think that's probably when it first came out and then they said, oh yeah, we could just do sauce and it's easier because it's so much easier with sauce. Opening the pack, it can be a little hard for whatever reason. They don't have the rip parts to them. You have to like use scissors or whatever. And then I'm very methodical about how I get the sauce out to make sure there's not a single little bit standing out, but I probably get mac and cheese. I'll say this. I always get mac and cheese if it's available as a side, 
Like Panera's mac and cheese is also phenomenal. You just don't get a whole lot. But I'm always – I used to be a cottage cheese aficionado where I would do that. Now I'm, I'm mac and cheese. So pretty much any meal, I'm, I'm getting the mac and cheese. We get a quick cut to the mom. Uh, she's still back in the van, and she's talking about being a bad parent. But the polka guys all have their own problems with their families. You know, Gus says that they're all away quite a lot because of all of their shows that they play. Uh, apparently, he left one of his kids at a funeral parlor once. Yeah, it was, uh, it was terrible, too. You know, I was all distraught and everything, you know, the wife and I. And we left the, the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day. All day. You know, we, we went back at night when, you know, when we came to our senses. And there he was. Apparently, he was there alone all day with a corpse. <sighs> now, he was okay, you know, after six, seven weeks. And I came around and started talking again. Uh, so that's his big fail. And we cut right back to the house. Uh, here it is snowing even more than it has been, which is quite a lot. Kevin wakes up in his parents' bed, and he runs downstairs looking for his mom, but she's not there. He had hoped that Santa would answer his wish, but apparently that did not happen. That is until the van drives up, and the mom goes back into the house. She walks around looking for Kevin, calling for him, and Kevin finally hears, and he runs to her. Oh, Kevin, I'm so sorry. We have a big smile and hug that happens, and he asks where everyone else is. She starts saying that they couldn't make it, but that they'll be back soon, right when they all walk through the front door. Apparently, they all manage to get a flight in, and so now the whole family is reunited. Buzz says that it's cool that Kevin didn't burn the place down. Kevin tells everybody that he went shopping, and they are stunned to hear that he did that. No kidding. What a funny guy. What else did you do while we were away? Just hung around. <laughs> After this conversation, Kevin's dad is walking around the house, and he finds the gold tooth. He looks at it a bit confused. Kevin then goes over to the window, and he looks out and sees... The old man, now reunited with his family, they share a wave and a smile to each other. And then we hear, from upstairs, Buzz yelling, Kevin! What did you do to my room? And then the movie ends, as we go to credits. Such a great finale. I mean, very touching here. So many tear-jerking moments. You know, you have, obviously, the mom coming here and saying, Oh, Kevin, that's a tearjerker when you get to see him reunite. You get the old man reuniting. That's a tearjerker. You got snow falling everywhere. It's Christmas morning, man. Like beautiful decorations. You can't beat it. Again, this is, you know, you had mentioned this in the beginning of the episode. This really is Christmas to me. I mean, this is this is how I envision Christmases are supposed to happen. And as crazy as everything is, it all comes together at the end. You know, families, they do have issues, but at the end of the day, they can come back together and we can just forget everything that had happened before and just live in love, have a good time, and be with family. And so this is just a really good way of just reuniting everyone. And I got to say this mom, though she made that whole trip and worried all that just for the family to come in at the very end, she would take that 10 out of 10 times. She has no regrets about it. My wife would say the same thing. Her being there for that five seconds early would be worth it for her. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem like practically to make much of a difference. Uh, I mean, the whole family also gave up their entire vacation to come back home. They just did it more efficiently. I don't really, 
I don't get it. I mean, I, I guess that from Kevin's point of view, he's going to remember that his mom went to these great lengths to get back to him. So that's where the value lies. But I don't know, man. That's She went through quite a lot in order to get that five seconds. It's like you said, her being able to tell that story of how she got there, her being the first one that Kevin saw as opposed to the whole family coming in. It allowed her to have a moment of apology before the craziness is going to happen where the family's coming in and we're right back to where we were in the beginning with everyone just screaming and shouting. Her having that moment, I know she doesn't regret not doing that because, again, the alternative would be sitting around being a, going crazy, not being able to be at a state of rest. We also get Grandpa here finally being able to uh, make up with it with his family and his son. Very cute moment. He's holding his granddaughter. And it's a really cute scene. He's u- using the double hand undertuck here. She's probably eight, maybe between eight and ten. My son's six. Pretty massive. She's a girl, so maybe not as like thick, but still a pretty big girl. He does the wave to Kevin. Does not flinch. One-handed, he's holding his granddaughter. So this, so I don't know. Like this guy either has unhuman strength, or she must have been like propped up somehow. I have no idea. But he just like waves, loses a hand under her, does not flinch. One other thing that I have to say: there is one extremely important member of the family who was absent during this final scene, which I find a little bit frustrating, and that is the family dog. We get a line at the very beginning of the movie where the mother is on the phone and she says to somebody in the confusion in the beginning of the movie that they put the dog in the kennel. And this actually refers to then uh, making an explanation as to why they have this doggy door in the kitchen door and everything. So the whole family's reunited here. Nobody picked up the dog. So you're just going to leave the dog in the kennel when everybody else is home? I mean, I'm hoping that they go back and get him immediately. But it would have been nice to have seen the dog also reunite with Kevin and the family. For some reason, they don't do that. They just leave that off entirely. I mean, gosh, I don't even I don't even think I included that in the narration that he went to the kennel. I had no idea. They, I, they do have a doggy door. I just kind of assumed that that was there when they bought the home. I honestly wouldn't. If you had asked me, hey, Paul, do they have a dog? I wouldn't have said it because there's no we really don't. Outside of maybe that conversation, I don't think there's anything even in the house about the dog. So that's no, kinda... and that's the other thing I yeah. wanted to mention. So uh, there is a brief, I know for sure that it's in there because there's a discussion about this online. Like people wondering, <laughs> well, do they have a dog or what? Because we never see <laughs> one. And there is this little clip. It's in that part where Kevin wants to watch the movie that his uncle Frank won't let him watch. And she says to Kevin... If Uncle Frank says no, then it must be really bad. And then she says to whoever's on the phone with her, no, we put the dog in the kennel. So we do know that they have this dog, and we don't know anything about the dog. And again, there's no decor, no photos, nothing of this dog. I mean, we have literally everything in our house themed after our dog. I mean, we have pictures. We have a drawing that we had an artist to do of him, this guy who drew sketches that my wife knew that would do sketches for a small fee. We have that hung up. We've got decor of dachshunds everywhere in like every room. I mean, I could get if you have this huge family and all these kids, then the dog might have to share some wall space with photos of the kids and everything. But there's not even like a family photo of everybody with the dog like even the one that kevin has in the bed there's no dog so 
I don't even know why they even referenced the dog if they weren't going to include him in the movie in some way. Yeah, very weird. And again, I, I honestly don't even remember that conversation happening. I'll say that this isn't, you know, this is a huge family reunion. And I know with, with our families, when we all get together, the animals tend to be either washed or put in a kennel in some capacity just because of allergies and some family members and just chaos with little babies and everything walking around. So I can understand that. And I guess they came home early, so they would have booked. I, I'm not familiar with how you book a kennel, but I'd imagine you book it for a week. And so I'm not entirely sure if they were just like, oh, we'll just since the dog's here, we'll leave him there. That way we don't have the chaos. They don't have like babies walking around. And, and I'm not entirely sure. But would you have I, I assume it's kind of like a hotel stay where you pay for a certain amount of time and they were just rushing to see Kevin first. And then maybe right after they're going to go to the kennel, maybe they're sending off Uncle Frank to grab him or something like that. <laughs> I guess you can hope on that. Is he in the sequel? Like, I'm kind of interested now. Well, see, in the sequel, they're they're not at home. They're in New York. So unless unless there's like an I haven't seen it in forever. So unless there's like an opening scene with him, like when they're at home, maybe. But I don't know. We'll we'll have to cover that movie. But as far as the kennel, they're all different. You know, some kennels, it might be a day, two day. I mean, you can basically book it for however long you need them. And then then you might be thinking, well, this is during Christmas. So they can't go well someone's got to be there to take care of the dogs like there's definitely it's got to be open they're not going to leave them there even on christmas without a caretaker so there's no excuse of why they couldn't go and and say we're taking them early i mean they maybe they'd have to pay for the time but i mean if the whole family's back like that's kind of absurd to me that they would leave him there so i mean yeah maybe they all rushed back to see kevin immediately did everybody need to do that? No, they could have just had some of the family go to the house and somebody go to the kennel. I don't know. I, I just would like to see him there, but unfortunately he seems to be absent from the scene. Now in my family, dogs just are, they just are where they are. We don't put them away. We don't put them in a kennel for people coming over. Even my dog, who does not like visitors, um, we we basically make people put up with it. And, you know, he eventually gets used to them. So in, in a Christmas gathering, like if it was at our house, he would definitely be here, no question, roaming around. So, yeah, it would be nice to see, get, get a nice um, sort of, you know, boys, you know, best friend in there. Uh, you could even have the dog actually, too bad he couldn't have been at the house. He could have been a good asset against the wet bandits. But unfortunately, you know, we don't get to see him in action. So final thoughts here. I really loved watching this again. Uh, it's been literally since I was a kid. Uh, and so I remembered everything. It just all came back to me. Every scene, every word of dialogue, every trap. I mean, I remembered all of it. It sort of just sparked back into my brain as soon as I saw it again. And it was sort of like reliving a memory that I hadn't thought about in like 25 years. And that was a pretty cool hit of nostalgia. And I would definitely like to review the second one uh, eventually. The second one, not as good, let's be honest. Uh, it's just not one that lives in my memory like this one. Because I feel like I maybe only watched it a couple times. I didn't watch it on loop like I did with this first one, but it is still with the original cast and everything. So I would like to revisit that one at some point. 
This is probably a top tier Christmas movie, I would say. Indisputably a Christmas movie as well. You've got all of the parts of the season. You've got the snow. You've got the family and the the morals and all those things. So it is very much in a sort of Christmas type of vibe. Uh, It does not supplant A Christmas Story for me as my favorite Christmas movie, but it's in the top tier, probably top three, maybe something like that. And I'm glad that I've rediscovered it for the podcast. Top three is probably accurate as well. Yeah, it captures captures everything you want about Christmas. It has obviously the, the spirituality parts, the morals. You have the snow. You have everything about the holidays, the craziness, the Christmas trees, the presents, the music, the choir, just going down the line. It's just warm and cozy. This is obviously standard Christmas stuff that you're going to be watching every single year. And I'm glad we were able to cover it. I, I trust that now maybe this will be part of your your traditional viewing. Does this enter? I know Christmas Vacation did not enter that tier. Is this part of the tier now where you might be coming back to this next year as a tradition? Yeah, yeah. This is definitely, this is sort of like a rediscovered part of childhood for me here. Whenever we started the podcast, there was a lot of things, sort of the genesis of it, chosen that word on purpose, the genesis of it. It was mainly that I was reliving a lot of childhood stuff just on my own for fun. And there is stuff like the Sega Genesis video games that I have always relived because I I love video games and I've always played them. But things like the shows and the movies and, you know, the Nickelodeon stuff, I had just started rewatching some of that stuff. And that was sort of what sparked the podcast, was that activity. And I think this is one of those things where, much like when I started rewatching some of those old shows that I had not seen in forever, stuff like, you know, Carmen Sandiego, Wishbone, Are You Afraid of the Dark, you know, whatever, that it sort of rekindled a lot of that memory and nostalgia. So it's... It's one that when I did watch it, I wondered why did it take me so long to go back to it? It seems like I shouldn't have stopped in the first place. Yeah, I find that with a lot of the stuff that we watch. It's like, why didn't I watch this back in the first place? And I just think we needed some reason to do it, probably. And that's kind of what I've, I've loved about the podcast is finding reasons to go back and rewatch shows that maybe are deemed you know, for children or whatever and be able to see it and appreciate it as an adult. And yet you have a perfectly good reason to go back and revisit it because we're doing it to be adults and apply analysis and reason. But at the same time, we could just go back and just enjoy it like you, you, know, you felt like a little kid again going back to all the traps and who knows what else. And you've rediscovered the, the meaning behind Christmas for yourself. You know, you've rediscovered your childhood and you know, I'm seeing a little Matt here believing in Santa Claus waiting for, waiting for him to come down the chimney. So you mean like right, right now, just, just how I am right now. But yeah, basically uh, it's, I think you hit on it with it stuff being for kids because you hit an age where you don't want to be a kid. Right. And, and so you start trying to, be more adult, more mature. You try to watch and listen to stuff that's like deemed cool or for adults. You know, you start watching, well, movies like The Godfather, like we just talked about, rather than movies like Home Alone. And while I think that's valuable too, I think it's better to strike a balance rather than go all one way or the other. I think a lot of people just sort of leave their childhood favorites 
in the past at a certain point. And I think that for us, speaking for myself, but I think it's true of you as well, like with video games, we always continued to play those. Like they were always a part of our life. But I feel like with this sort of media, watching a show that's like, oh, a Nickelodeon show for kids or whatever, a lot of people just at some point age out of it and then never come back to it. They just leave it behind and they probably never realize that these shows still have a lot of value when you are older. It's like it's a whole it's like it's a familiar nostalgic experience, but also different in a way that makes it interesting because you're seeing it with all those years of experience since when you first watched it. Just trick-or-treating in Halloween, a couple that doesn't know about the podcast, listen or anything like that, they have no idea, but we were going trick-or-treating with their families as you know, a big group of people, and they were talking about it. So they were like, hey, so what movie were you watching tonight? What Halloween movie? And the one person said, Casper. And he said, oh, not, not a kid's movie, an adult movie. And I, I stepped in and I said, whoa, Casper's an adult movie. What are you talking about? And they, I think they just thought I was like joking or whatever. And I just, I, I didn't want to, you know, beyond that, if they were going to engage me, I would have engaged them. But they just, they, they were just like, Casper's a kid's movie. That's something we watch with our kids, not as an adult. As an adult, we can't watch that together. We have to watch a horror movie that's terribly violent or something like that. I'm like, well, how is Casper not, I understand it can be enjoyed by kids, but how is it also not an adult movie? Like there are tons of different things that I picked up in that movie watching it as an adult that only an adult could pick up. And you can see it from, you know, Dr. Harvey's perspective as an adult. So just because it can be enjoyed by kids, it makes it a kid's movie. No, I disagree with that. And so the fact that they were just wrote that off is like, no, that's a movie we watch with our kids maybe. But for us, we're going to watch something that has to be more mature in terms of the the brutality or whatever, the themes or whatever. It's like that, those exist in, in some of these kids things too. I understand it may be, taboo but nevertheless is is obviously true in my opinion i think so too i i don't really understand that dichotomy of adult and then kid and like why can't there be overlap i feel like a lot of these movies were designed intentionally to appeal to both because they knew that adults would have to take kids to see these movies so they're designed for everybody you know to to enjoy I don't really know why there needs to be any kind of stigma around how old you are when you watch something or enjoy something. It seems like just sort of an arbitrary, like social norm or idea that we sort of put into our own heads is like an obstacle to, to enjoying things. And, and, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think home alone is a perfect example of a movie that there's no reason for anybody to, think of it as a kid's movie, or even if they do think of it as a kid's movie to not enjoy it. I mean, even if it is a kid's movie, let's say it is, why can't we watch it? And I'd go so far as to say that I don't even know that they're designed for kids. I I would say I completely agree that there is overlap and they're made for adults, but I would almost argue that that's, that that's the intended purpose of the movies, you know, like a toy story. Yes. It uses animation and colorful things, but the substance of the movie is very much it's adult driven in a lot of the themes that you're presented with, you know, and, and going down the list of, of all the different Pixar movies we'll cover. Yeah. They're cartoonish or whatever, but the reality is beyond the action scenes and the funny looking characters, you have deep seated themes 
written by adults and ultimately that hit as an adult. Now, maybe some of the themes can connect with kids or whatever, but they don't understand that. They don't get it at the time. They're not they're not watching Toy Story or Frozen and they're like, oh my gosh, look at the deeper themes of X, Y, and Z. They're just like, oh, I like this song or this character looked cool. So they have to have the deeper themes applied to adults. And so I, I, I think they're almost designed around very adult type topics, but they use the facade that a kid might like. If a kid were making, if a movie were truly designed for a kid, I mean, that's more like the Coco Lemon type stuff where it's just right. like mindless, <laughs> mindless, like song and dance and colors floating in the screen. No, correct. So yeah, any kid's movie that, that we grew up with anyway, you know, it had an intelligent writer, you know, behind it who wrote this for a reason with themes and with ideas. So I think that. Yeah, you know, especially since it's the holiday season, you know, give yourself some leniency to enjoy some of that stuff. And if you haven't been, maybe you've been listening to the podcast, listening to us talk about it, but you haven't gone back and taken some time to watch some of this stuff for yourself. I'd recommend taking some time, especially if you have some time off work, if you have some vacation, kind of go back to it. Don't just listen to us, like actually go and experience it for yourself. Because it's really, we wouldn't keep doing this if it wasn't a lot of fun to go back and revisit these things. We've been on it for almost two years now doing this, and it's been a big benefit uh, to go back and think about and feel some of these things again. It's very beautifully said, and I trust that if someone's at this point in our podcast hearing these words, that they are of that mindset and so I'm glad that you're part of the journey and, and we'll keep trotting forth here. This is just another one of our great episodes we're covering in our Christmas season. We still have, have some more to go, but um, we're excited to continue the journey, just reliving all these, having a, an excuse to relive this. And you can too with uh, say, hey, I want to understand the episode better. I want to understand the discussions better. So yeah, before you hear the podcast, feel free to watch the movie beforehand and you'll have, it'll only enhance your understanding of the things we're talking about and then things that we may have missed or things you may disagree with. But definitely it's never going to hurt to have a prior viewing despite our narration here. All right, guys, we will catch you next time when we return to the 1990s. Follow us on Patreon and Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Our Patreon offers access to special posts, a Discord server, and bi-weekly exclusive episodes. Spend time with us there until our next new episode when we return to the 1990s.